G'day everyone. My guest today is my good friend and host of the Envoy podcast, Nathan Shaw. Nathan is a foreign policy and international relations expert and one of my favorite people in the world to talk to. As I mentioned, Nathan hosts the Envoy podcast, on which he rounds up and dives deep into world events from a foreign policy and international relations perspective. Even before starting to host the Envoy podcast, Nathan was always my primary source of world news and I could literally talk to him indefinitely, asking more and more questions about what's going on in the world. Like my previous guests, Nathan is one of those people that seems to have just a bottomless pit of knowledge with a well-informed and well-thought-out answer to any question I can throw at him. It's a real treat for me every time I have the opportunity to have a discussion with Nathan. And with this episode of Thought Club, I get to pass the treat on to you as well. If you're like me, over the past decade, you've probably heard the terms Euro crisis, Greek debt, austerity measures, EU and NATO. If you're also like me, you probably think you have some idea about what these terms mean, but if pressed, couldn't give a detailed explanation of what they are and why anyone should care. What was the Euro crisis and what actually caused it? What are the EU and NATO, and how do they relate to each other, and could one exist without the other? These are the two main questions I've been saving up for this episode of the podcast with Nathan. As I expected, Nathan dives deep into both questions in his usual way, precise, well thought out, and entertaining. I really enjoyed this conversation with Nathan, and I'm super excited to be able to share it with you today. It's a long one, but a damn good one. Get ready for some serious knowledge drops. Please welcome Nathan Shaw. For people that don't know, you are the host of the Envoy podcast, a podcast about foreign policy and international relations. A lot of the questions that I've been building up over the last couple of weeks that I purposely haven't asked you have come from the podcast. You are my primary source of information about the world. <laughs> I don't really know what's going on. That's I don't watch the news. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. So the questions that I've been building up over the last couple of weeks... I was initially wanting to do the podcast about the EU and NATO mm. and the relationship between them, and I'm hoping that we can get to cover those. But your last three episodes really inspired me because it was a story that I'd heard about in passing. So the story that you covered in the last three episodes was the debt crisis in Europe. Yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah. Is it called the global financial crisis in Europe? How would you uh, refer to it? It's, it's referred to as the Euro crisis. The Euro crisis. Um, and it is technically not the global financial crisis. It okay. is the after effects of the global financial crisis. It is the self-inflicted wounds of the global financial crisis from the Europeans' point of view. Right. Where you kind of have a – if you looked at the graph, the graph of like America and Europe, America, you know, as there's a common thing in economics where they say when you're – America – uh, gets a cold, everyone you know, catches the flu kind of thing. It kind of spreads out for America. America has exported, I think, every depression or recession it's had um, since like World War One or something like that and has never received one from someone else. It always exports its stuff because it's so powerful and impactful, but it tends to, because it's such a strong domestic market, it doesn't take it from anyone else. So that was kind of the start. And then the, this kind of Euro crisis is, you know, you, you, the Americans did the right thing. The, the Europeans did not. And so you look at the graph, the Americans recover reasonably well and the Europeans just stay in recession for a long time before they finally go, okay, this is a dumb idea. Let's stop doing what we're doing. Super interesting. So, yeah. So that's basically the Euro crisis. That, okay. The Euro crisis is the right way to right, refer, right to, to, refer it. to it. Yeah. And your last three podcasts were specifically about the Euro crisis. 
And they really inspired me specifically because they were, or the story of the Euro crisis was something that just came up in the news and you hear words like Greek debt and Euro crisis Mm. and austerity measures and things like that. And you think you have some conception about what went on, but it seems like after listening to your podcast, the story that potentially was sold to people on the news is not accurate. So the one thing that I wanted to get from you, because I think you're probably better informed in this respect, as well as the real way, was what was the story of the Euro crisis in a nutshell as sold to the public via the news? Okay, so the way the story was sold to the majority of people and how the majority of people kind of saw it um, was that the South, the kind of European South, which refers to basically um, Spain, Italy, Greece and the like, and there's a common um, system of figuring out it's butter or oil. And the question is, are you in the north or south is whether you use butter or oil on your bread and on your pizzas and things like that. So all these countries in the south tend to use oil. The oil people. The oil people. And they're seen typically as quite lazy by the northerners. They, they kind of have been seen as this lovely Mediterranean climate. They sit around doing nothing and all the people up north in the cold are working hard and making a new. That's the kind of, that's the kind of background cultural perception that many people have. Um, so it the social substrate worked well with the story that was told. So it was already kind of background there. It wasn't just something that was sold immediately. It was like they're already working with that to begin with. You mean specifically the Europeans the or Europeans. the world as a whole? Because uh, it seemed like the, the world European- as a whole was also sold this story. Well, the, it was the world as a whole, but the the perception that they built it from was very much a European perception. Australians don't really like we we have a sense of Italians from the Italians we meet in Australia. We don't really know Italians back home, but like beyond kind of some cultural stereotypes. Um, but yeah, so from the European perspective, like the Germans, it's quite funny. The Germans look down at the Italians and say they're lazy. The Northern Italians look at the Southern Italians and think they're lazy. And so it goes on and on and on from right. there. And eventually you're what, the Sicilians yeah, yeah, or something, right? The Southern tip of Sicily is, you know, lazier than the Northern tip. You know, if, if you want to, well, they're all, you know, supposedly the stereotypes, they're all mafia types anyway. So. Yeah, I've heard that too. Um, which is yeah, partially true. Um, and so what was the narrative? So that's so, the general so perception. So that's the general perception. The narrative was that the people in the South had taken too much debt. They had spent it on enriching themselves and having a great time and that they weren't working hard and thereby this has caused the now massive debts that they're, they're suffering from. And we need to uh, basically punish them for what their terrible acts were. Um, and they, we must enforce austerity, which is the idea of cutting back on uh, government spending and trying to increase your taxes. So basically you, you're trying to take as much tax as you can from the people and give as very little back as you can in terms of education, healthcare, all the other things you do. Um, and the idea was that, yeah, these people have been... Um, Irresponsible Irresponsible, yeah. Irresponsible. They've been just splashing it out and now it's time to, to them to be, you know, understand kind of German austerity and the idea of working hard right. and coming forward. And so this is kind of the, the idea that was put forward. So, the, yeah, so the narrative was based around the fault lying, lying hand in, the, in the hands of the oily people. The oily people to the south. Right. The oily people took on too much debt. They were spending too much. Yes. They... They weren't growing their economy. Yep. They weren't investing, that sort of thing. They took on too much debt. And then when the GFC hit, they it's, weren't able to pay back their debt. They weren't so to pay the debts. Ostensibly, that's the story. That's ostensibly the story. The, there is another part to it 
in that there is a genuine uh, difficulty in getting your taxes in in like in Italy and Greece. Oh, trying I've heard to this, I heard this about Spain as well. Apparently, yeah. has one of the highest tax evasion rates. Yes, internally. Yeah. Wow. So, so there is a, there a reasonable foundation to the actual accusation that the government is not able to get the taxes from the people, so the people are running off with money and, and not you know supporting the government properly. Um, there is another issue insofar as particularly the Greeks, less so the other states, but you can make an argument, um, a lot of corruption in the government um, and that the kind of the story of the Greek government is various sides coming into power, stealing, and then getting thrown out another side coming into, and that's after, this is, it's interesting because you think of Greece as being this kind of democracy, you know, you think of the Athenian democracy and, and oh yeah, well, they're pretty good in democracy. The high thinkers of antiquity, high thinkers right? of antiquity. Um, but for the, like a good portion of the Cold War, it was a military dictatorship wow. because they would keep the communists out. And that's us in the West, we were like, that's fine. We, we, we do Keep this. the communists out yeah. via... Via cracking down on them internally and not allowing them to take any kind of position of power. And that's kind of, as an aside, the Cold War was a lot of uh, revolutions where communists come to power or threats of that. And the West going, who do we have on the ground who will defeat these people? Stamp out these Stamp out these flames, guys. Right? They are the ultimate threat. Um, so let's get, you know, this guy who's a, a colonel and they have the regime of colonels and things like that, or we'll get a general to do it or some autocrat. Um, we're happy to work with them because they're going to stamp out the communists. Um, but we'll get to probably later to kind of my worldview, maybe we'll see, um, right. on international relations, but that's basically what we did. And so same with Greece, despite the fact that it's kind of the foundation of democracy and whatnot. Okay. So, so, so they were working with a difficult position. They're coming out of that. Um, so you're probably expecting some corruption and some difficulties, but right. regardless, it's known it would be a lie to say that there was like, oh, it was a perfectly functioning country. There's no grounds for them saying that they're corrupt and da da da, and that they're wasting money. Okay, but so that that part of the story, or maybe the stereotypes of, let's it, say, economic it was a irresponsibility, very easy lie to sell. Like right. if you're trying to sell a lie, you want to put some some truth in there. Okay, um, so that's kind of the foundation of that, uh, and the idea that they have. Overborrowed. Now you can't overborrow without overlending. Right, and this is and this is the next part that I wanted to get to. Yeah. Listening to your podcast, I think you give a really great breakdown of the play-by-play of, I guess, from your perspective, what quote-unquote actually happened. Trademark. Yeah. I've made a little summary of the play-by-play based on what I've heard from you specifically, mm-hmm. because I had really no detailed knowledge about this before. I want to run the play-by-play by sure. you yeah. and see if if I've nailed it. And then I had some questions on the play-by-play, if it's all correct, mm-hmm. what I've come up with. I had some questions at specific points where I was a little bit confused. And although it was already a deep dive on your podcast, maybe we can go into a, a deeper. deeper dive. Sure. So this was the play-by-play that I had taken down. In the beginning, there was the removal of monetary policy control from countries in the EU. So what you start the podcast with, which I found really interesting, was going into the basis of manipulating economies through fiscal policy and monetary policy. From what I understood, fiscal policy was things like internal to the country, taxation and spending at the government level. Monetary policy was essentially manipulating interest rates through printing or not printing money you know, expanding and contracting the money supply? Uh, so a lot of it is not so much printing, although you can do that. It's it's the interest rate that the government central bank lends to the banks. And okay. so the... Creation of debt, right? Uh, 
yeah, I guess you could say it's basically there's off, there's a thing called an overnight lending system. And so your bank will have to have cover some debts and things like that. And it'll have to take some money from the government central bank. And it sets the interest rate that it wants for its. And then you base your interest rates on that. So by through the central bank, you set the interest rates. Obviously, maybe it's a 1% or something like that. And then you as a bank go, well, we have to pay them 1%. So we're going to put our interest rates at 2%. That way we make can a make, make a profit in the middle. So that's, that's kind of how they do that. But there's a, they, they can do other things where they can print lots of money and create inflation and, and do other things like that. But yeah, absolutely right. right. So the, the monetary policy essentially is one of the two levers in exactly. manipulating the the economy in, in one sense, inflation yeah. and the creation of debt and things like that. Obviously, if you, I mean, from my understanding, if you can create more debt, more debt is readily available. That would probably contribute to an economy expanding and inflation going up. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's a classic thing is that you put uh, interest rates down to make debt cheaper. Yep. And so there'll be more debt. Uh, the money gets spent. That booms the economy because suddenly there's lots of money running around. And everyone's got everyone's got a car now. Everyone's got a, you know, a house. Everyone's you know, buying new what they call capital. You know, new machines for their business so they can grow. That improves the economy. But then you also get the problem that as things improve, prices start going up because you're starting going well. There's everyone's employed now because things are going so well. So how are we going to employ someone? We're going to offer that guy an extra 10% and then someone else is going to offer him 11%. And so the prices start going up in terms of wages. And then, well, now I'm going to have to pay these guys all this money. I have to sell my products for more. So then put the price of products up. And so you get this kind of inflationary spiral. So yeah, absolutely. Stuff. And this was the, the really interesting part that I thought was an interesting foundation for the Euro crisis was that you said that because of countries in the EU not being able to set their own monetary policy, mm. that became the basis of countries that previously had very high risk on their debt suddenly having apparently lower risk on their debt. So the mechanism that I understood from the podcast, and correct me if I got this wrong, was that the reason that maybe countries in the South, the oily the, oily, the oil countries were perceived as having higher risk when they were in control of their monetary policy was because they could increase inflation to essentially get rid of their debt. And that made their debt worthless if yep. they were able to control their inflation. So if someone was issuing debt at a certain percentage and they increased inflation over that, they would that would enable them to very easily pay back their debt. But the person that they're indebted to suddenly is not really making any money mm. on on that investment anymore. Yeah, on and, that debt. and so that's what, if you want to see kind of an example of hyperinflation, it's what that was done very effectively by the Germans um, after the First World War is, you know, we often see and we've heard about the idea of hyperinflation, people with money in wheelbarrows being around, you know, barreled around. That was a classic Zimbabwean image, right? Zimbabwean, is, and you're going to see it, in, and you're seeing it right now in Venezuela as well. Oh. Um, but... If as it if it's government policy to set hyperinflation, it is you can do it and it can be very effective because it'll eat away the debt very quickly. Because if you have to pay someone back a hundred dollars, and then you make it's just it's set that's it's a hundred dollars whatever it is, and you go well I've only got a hundred dollars at the moment. What if I print a thousand dollars? I can just give them a hundred dollars. I've still got a thousand dollars afterwards. Psh, easy peasy. Um, they're going to be upset because now you mean the person that holds that debt, right? The person that holds a debt is going to be very upset now because they expected to get a hundred dollars based on when you didn't have that extra money amount. And so when you print 
uh, money, you're basically devaluing it. So it's like if you have um, a piece of gold and it's really, really rare, and you think, this is great, I've got this gold, it's brilliant, and then suddenly someone finds this mother load of gold and it makes the valley of gold plummet, you're going to be really upset. And that, happened in, that happened in Spain when they started to conquer South America, I believe. I mm. think the value of gold and silver there basically went down. They were yeah. experiencing hyperinflation Inflation. because of all this gold coming in. And yeah. I think maybe that was the first time in history where that had happened, where you essentially had an influx of this rare material, rare material mm. in a way that if you had gold before, you can't print gold. Yeah. You had to get yeah. gold so from it was, somewhere. So it's good at holding its value. And that's why people have still today value precious metals because they're good at holding the value because there is a set amount. You can't just print gold. Whereas you can right. print money. So especially and related to the global financial crisis, when that hit, people move their money to things like gold because it's going to hold its value, whatever happens. Um, whereas if you put it in you know, stocks or something, it might crash or you right. know something might become inflated or deflated. So it's best to put it in gold. But... As an aside, that is an interesting case in history where it actually didn't hold its value as perceived. But yeah, that's it's, the effect of, of inflation is that it makes debt worth less. And so that's a risk. If someone yeah. has access to their own printing machine, you give, you say, oh, I'll take your debt. But, and you're looking across the room at them and they're just handing, like with their hand next to the lever and you're like, all right, well, it's going to be 20%. You're going to have to pay me because right. I don't trust you. Whereas if you go to the Germans, the Germans are pretty pretty stringent on, on now. inflation now because they have that memory. But their memory doesn't seem to include the fact that it was done purposely to screw over the people that they had debt to back right. in the day. But they remember how horrible it was um, and the effects of inflation. So, so coming back to the yes. EU, this idea that you've removed the ability for countries in the EU to essentially inflate their way out of debt. Yep. What it meant was countries that previously would have had a very high yield on their debt. Mm -hmm. High interest rate. High yep. interest rate on their debt. Because people perceived them as not being able to manipulate their inflation in order to get rid of it, their risk apparently goes down. Mm. And the yield on their debt also goes down. Yeah. So what, what happened in what you mentioned in the podcast was that Greek debt that previously was maybe sitting at around 20%, very, very quickly started to approach the yields that people were expecting on countries that were already considered lower risk, even when they were in control mm. of their, their monetary policy. So this is, this is where it starts to get interesting. Because the yields on their bonds went down, mm -hmm. German and French banks, in order to maintain their profits, where previously they would have been getting 20% yields on a bond, they may be now getting 5% just yeah. to throw a figure out, you would need four times as many in order, to, or four times the amount in order to cover what you would have received originally. Exactly. Because now it's a lower risk thing, you yeah. get a lower, a lower percentage. So because German and German and French banks were getting lower yields on the oil bonds, we'll call them. <laughs> yeah, sure. The oil, oil country bonds. <laughs> oil, oil country bonds. They started to buy more. Yep. They increased their balance sheets of oil country bonds. At that point, the GFC in the US happened, precipitated. Yep. Presumably, the... This the, the fact that there was a GFC there made certain investments that these big European banks had in the US worthless. Yep. So they weren't making any money on that, and they probably they lost a whole mm. part of their balance sheet. 
in order to cover that loss, they needed to sell some other things on their balance sheet in order to recoup the principal that they've mm -hmm. invested elsewhere. They were forced into selling the debt, the huge amount of debt that they had taken from the oil countries. Because everyone, all of those large banks were selling those bonds at the same time, it essentially made them impossible to sell because the value went to zero. No one wanted to buy them. German and French banks were too big to fail. So they couldn't cover their costs because of the, the US GFC and the, the hit that they'd taken because of that. They couldn't sell the Greek or oil country bonds because no one would buy them. And they also couldn't fail because they were too big. And if they did fail, it would throw their country into mayhem, basically. People not being able to withdraw money from banks, that sort of thing. Rather than bail the banks out, more debt was issued to the oil countries to pay back the debt that the German and French banks had bought from those countries. And then the cost of bailing those those banks out was essentially passed to those countries. And then the EU imposed austerity measures on yes. those countries. Is that a is that a fairly accurate play-by-play that, play of what actually happened? I would say near perfect. That's, oh, wow. that's very well done. Well, that's um, a refle reflection on your <laughs> podcast, man, because that's you. where I learned it all. Yeah, so you've hit the nail on the head pretty much. Um, the, the banks in Germany, if they could no longer support themselves, if they ran out of money... Um, that would cause what they call a credit crunch. Credit crunch. They would not be able to lend. They would be like, we're not lending to anyone. It's too risky in this environment. So that means all the people out there, you know, every day, huge sums of money are being lent and borrowed at the same time. And when that stops, it's kind of think of it as the kind of lubricant of the economy. And so if that stops, then your business can't get a loan to buy a replacement machine. So you can't work to run your coffee store anymore. You can't get your espresso machine. So industry sort of grinds industry to a halt. Industry grinds to a halt. So it is, you know, and it's the same for people just living their day by day. So if that happens, the economy is going to suffer terribly and it's going to precipitate further and further effects. So you have to not let that happen. That's what the big, too big to fail is all about. But just bailing out the banks annoys people. And you saw it in America with the Occupy Wall Street. The idea that we just bailed out all these financial institutions, this is unacceptable, they've gotten all these bonuses, how can we let this happen? Um, that's It's not right. So it is a political, it's kind of political suicide to do that in some respects. And it, it, it's really painful from a political perspective to do that. So instead of doing that, they said, well, these balance sheets that you've got have got all this Greek debt and you can't sell it because if you try and sell it at once, Everyone's selling, no one's buying, the market can't find a price, it plummets. So instead, they owe you money. They're going to pay you back. We're going to give them money in a bailout. So we're going to bail out the Greeks. And so they can then use that money and pay our German banks. And that way you will be solid. You'll be, you get paid, you can cover your losses in the US because the mortgage crisis there, you had invested in all the very silly securities over there. And when that went to zero, you were in, in trouble. So we're going to bail you out that way. But in the end, it then means the Greeks have been bailed out, and so they and owe the Germans. And the Germans say, well, now you owe us. You owe us our money. And they don't say it publicly, any of this, of, of kind of like, you owe us money, and it's because we used you to fix our own system. They just say, you owe us money. We bailed you out. You would have collapsed. Um, 
So, and as an aside, if you look at um, Iceland, they did refuse to bail out and they just let things fail. Was and, Iceland in the EU? Uh, I don't recall, actually. But I did hear about this story specifically and they ousted th- quite a lot of bankers, didn't they? Yeah, so basically the bankers are in big trouble. They got rid of the government. Um, I mean, it's a country of, I think, 300,000 people. It's So it, it's, it could be hard to say that there are the perfect test experiment that will work on a larger scale country. They they kind of return they went they're kind of quite high tech. They have a lot of you know, gaming companies and tech companies and things like that. They reverted to like just fishing and they used fishing and they kind of rebuilt kind of their fishing industry out of it um, and kind of and reset their country to some degree. Whether the Greeks could have done that and just said, no, we're not taking your money and let's let it collapse, I don't know if it would have been a good idea. They also have the the fact that they are in the EU. Are in the EU. And, and connected so, by land as well, I yeah. think might affect things slightly. It's, I mean, it's, the problem for Greek Greece as a background is that they kind of require other outsiders to give them assistance just because their land is not that profitable. You kind of need a big Germany or France or America or, or Britain to support them. Otherwise, your economy just can't grow that big. And like, you mean support them in terms of buying their exports? Well, or? kind of uh, investing in them, uh, providing them credit. Um, before the global financial crisis, there was this big hoo-ha about how well like, the Greek and the Spanish um, economies are growing. It's like It was like a big investment opportunity. Get behind the Greece. It's going great. It's going bonanza- bonanzas. Um, and so people forget about that kind of happening before. And that was because debt, because we saw as those yields went down, the interest down, they could... I could get 4,000 euros instead of 1,000 euros from all these banks. Brilliant. I'll do that. And you can use that money and you'll get growth. If you, you know, could triple the amount of, uh, of money in your accounts from overseas, uh, well, no, well, I guess not overseas, but outside of your countries and foreign investors, then you can absolutely boom your economy. Um, so not- people were essentially, the growth that they were seeing was not real growth. No, it was just, just debt. It's, yeah, it's artificial in some degrees. And there's something to be said for taking money, investing it wisely, building your economy up, and then paying off the debt. That's kind of the classic thing to do is like, yeah, if you're profitable and you use it intelligently, there's nothing wrong with taking on debt. Um, but the idea was, you know, these countries have been acting poorly. It's like, well, no, you guys, you were investing in them and you were making profits off them for a long time. And you were very happy with this arrangement until it went to zero. And this this was my next question specifically. At that point where the Greek debt, the perceived risk of Greek mm. debt dropped down to essentially be the same as any other EU country, what, was, what I heard was that the countries now, in order to maintain their profits, bought more mm. of the Greek debt. Why Why did they do that? Why did they continue buying it rather than investing it in something else? Surely they were able to see that the perceived risk was maybe disconnected to the actual risk or... No, I think you're giving people too much credit. Um, there's a few things. It's Part of it is kind of psychology. If you are in an investment bank or something like that, you want to go with the crowd on these kind of things. Like investing in Greece is booming. There's you new, know, they're getting great growth. Why are you going to be the one guy on the floor that says, no, this is risky? Ah, uh, right. Because if you're wrong, you're out. If you're right, well, everyone else on the floor chose wrong. So they're not going to fire everyone but you. So there's no real point to doing anything but just going with the crowd. 
And so if you're you know, in, in, in your business and there's other, or you can talk about other banks doing it uh, in kind of a more grander scope rather than just looking at the investment floor, but there is a perverse incentive to keep doing what the rest of the market is doing, regardless of the actual facts on the ground. And so you see that a lot with markets where we're going up, we're going up, going up, and it's people should have, if they just stopped and thought, gotten out. But they see, well, because the markets, a lot of the market is what people believe, it means you can go past the point of where you should have stopped. And you're like, well, it's still going up. I may as well steep, keep staying in and, and it'll keep going up. And then I can sell later, but then you get caught out at some point. I just, I, okay, so but, what, I, what I think is going on here, because if the yields on the bonds are going down, yeah. what I'm guessing is happening as linked to the economy was that on the market, the mm-hmm. value of the bonds was above the principal plus the yield. I just can't, I can't in my head <laughs> understand how if the yields on the bonds are going down, mm. why you would be buying more. Okay, so so think of it as having slack. Um, there's like an elastic band. The German economy is quite tight. It's like you can't issue any more bonds you have currently. The economy is moving as fast as it can. It doesn't have that much more room to grow. It's a fairly established economy. Whereas if you're a developing economy, there's a lot you could you can make a lot more gains over time. You're not reached the kind of peak where you start stabilizing. So, so it's got more to do with actual issuing of bonds. Yeah, a so growing economy will issue more bonds, so there are more bonds to buy. Whereas yeah. the other ones, there there's a limited supply essentially. Yeah, the the German. Uh, economy doesn't need to build the autobahn. It already it already has it. Whereas the Greeks, their national road system is being built right now with the original debt they got during sort of prior to the GFC. Like they they were still building up their economy. And so in that kind of situation, the government's very happy to issue more debt. And so if you're the uh, the bank and you're like, we invested in Greece, they're giving us a nice return. The return's reducing now because hey, they don't have a printing press anymore. So we're able to issue them lots of debt because they're happy to take it. And well, we can know, see that they're doing good stuff with it. Is well, that linked to it? They're building things. You don't, I think, again, you might be giving people too much credit. They, they look at what's on, on the numbers. Um, and it's something with the GFCs, like people didn't go out and actually look at the, all the foreclosed houses and whatnot. They've just, they're sitting in their rooms, just looking at the numbers. But from their perspective, like the economy's booming, they're willing to give us debt. Um, they're willing to, you know, they're willing to take the debt. They're willing to take loans. Uh, why not give it to them? That's that's a we can make a whole bunch of money. Why not? And so then, that it seems to be more like, it seems that the issue is centered more on the fact that Greece was willing to issue more debt. It was it was more less than willing, but it's like it was capable of doing it. It's like Greece, like if you do it in Germany, all you're going to do in Germany is probably create inflation because you're going to try and your your economy is going as fast as it probably can. There's not much slack. You would just be like creating holes and then refilling them because there's nothing else to really build because you know Germany is a pretty well built country. So let's let's run that that thought experiment. Mm. Let's say Germany just started issuing a whole bunch of bonds and mm-hmm. other people bought them. That would what result in a huge influx of money to the government. Yep. The government couldn't the government what what would the government tend to do with a whole bunch of debt or with a whole bunch of money that it has suddenly gotten? What could it do with it? So any any normal government spending, it could try and just like if you have like a healthcare budget and you you want to prop it up, you can just use debt to do that. It's generally not a great idea because it's an ongoing cost. That means you're going to have to keep getting debt into the country or grow your economy. And generally healthcare, it doesn't really grow your economy. 
ipso facto. It does help because obviously you have sick workers, they can't work, and so you're, you're avoiding um, kind of a recession in that regard. So there's, there's certain benefits to healthcare. But regardless, generally you want to take debt on to build something in particular. So you want to build a road network so you can link your economy, so people can move things efficiently, and then you improve the uh, ability for your domestic economy to grow. So basically, if you took on government debt, it would be to invest in something that would have the potential to grow the economy. Yeah. And but again, uh, may give people too much credit. Politicians are very <laughs> I happy to be doing this, man. I, I know. know why. It's it's a, a bit of a risk when you try to think best of others. And then when it comes <laughs> to economics and money and politics, people are often quite uh, crude. And so politicians you know, for the perverse incentives of the short-term kind of election cycles, will often take on debt so they can give you a tax cut or give you some short-term boost uh, so they can get re-elected. It's not the smartest thing to do for the economy as a whole, but they might do it because they think they can get elected that way. And, you know, in the end, I guess you could also say we're at fault because we believe them. Right. Um, and if I had one thing I could teach everyone around the world, I'd be like, when the economy's going well, don't... Don't take out more debt. Just save the money. And when it's going bad, then spend the money. And like you, that's Keynesian economics. Keynesian right? economics. Keynesian, that's kind of yeah. the basic uh, thought experiment. The idea of during the business cycle, when things are going well, don't give away tax cuts. So if you you know back in uh, during the John Howard years, we got multiple tax cuts. Wrong thing to do. Should be saving because money. our economy was going well at that point. Reasonably well. Okay. We were on the upswing uh, out of the nineties, uh, which were started off a bit rough. Um, so, you, you know, there's... Well, we were born, so... Yeah. <laughs> well, there's only uphill from there. Um, <laughs> so you can make the argument that, you know, if the economy is looking like it's going better, you might want to lower the taxes maybe for the lowest, um, for the poorest people, because they might need some money to deal with inflation, things like that. But otherwise, you don't want to drop them too much. You want to try and take as much money as you can, build a nice big revenue. And there's the, there was, before the GFC, there was this big thing about... Um, uh, not having any debt, not having any deficit, things like that. And this became a mantra that we will, you know, we will provide revenue. We will not, you know, go into deficit. We're responsible people. And all around the world, this kind of idea of being responsible fiscal conservatives or, or whatnot. Um, it's it's silly. It's like we we will only have umbrellas on, on, on and we will always have the umbrellas. So if there's a rainy day, we will be safe. But, you know, on the day when there's lightning, it's a bad idea to have the umbrella because you need to get zapped. So you need to change what you do based on the conditions. So if things are going really well, then you want to save, save, save. And you want to try and not put money into the economy. You want to, you know, do a few build things. Build your reservoir. Build your reservoir, right? yeah. And you might have to, okay, Fly we have wheel. to rebuild this hospital because we just have to. It's like there's nothing else to do. But you don't go on big spending sprees. And that's like you saw in, in Western Australia. Uh, the Colin Barnett state government got all this money from the back mining. Back in the 90s? Back uh, the last 10 years, basically. Last 10 years, okay, sorry. Last I'm... 10 to 20 because we got out through the global financial crisis very well um, because of the mining and selling to China, basically. Um, and so we built all this stuff. And, you know, it's great. It's nice stuff. It's, you know, you got a Elizabeth Key and you've got, you know, the bell tower and all these things. But now... Huge, the, huge, huge. Uh, income generators. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all those tourists coming to see the bell tower. Um, and, you know, I could be having to eat my words. Maybe there is an increase in tourism <laughs> yeah. because of that. But my perception is that it probably didn't generate as much revenue as it cost. Um, and it was better to hold on to the money and wait until the mining boom would have inevitably stopped because, again, it would... People again see, no, we're just going fine. It keeps going. And they, they forget about these things. And that when it does, like right now, 
revenues drop, you would have this huge reserve. So the current government wouldn't be running around like crazy trying to find revenue. Um, so that's the basic kind of outline of why right. why you need to get debt yeah. and why you want to use it to push the economy forward when it's doing badly. Um, but if you're Germany and everything's going fine and you're growing stably and right. you're already a developed country, you, you don't need more debt. hospitals, you don't right. need more roads, you don't need that much more debt. But if you're Greece, you do want to build hospitals, you want to build roads, you want to try and build up your economy. So it makes sense for them to issue more Issue more debt. Issue okay, more debt. so it makes more sense. My next question was, how? where did this money come from? Where did these huge German and French banks get the money to buy the, buy the, the debt from the oil countries? Uh, honestly, I don't know where their specific money came come from. Mm. Come from, um, but so these are the national banks, right? So, and and this well, was sort of what you mentioned is the German and French national banks, Deutsche Bank. I don't know what it is in was so, that BNP Paribas or something in France. Yeah, so it's a if you look, there's a whole bunch. There's a couple banks. So like okay. for instance, in France, there was I think it's Ag- Agricola. Like there was a, basically a farmers bank, like an industry farmers bank type thing. That seems to be pretty common in most yeah, economies. That be like yeah kind of transformed from this little bank to this like something worth like a third of the French economy with like 100% of the, the same value of the French economy just right. through this kind of effect. Well, I think the Agricultural Bank of China is the number three <laughs> bank in the world by holdings yeah. after two other Chinese banks. But so yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of a bit silly sometimes. But part of being a bank is that you issue uh, loans to people um, and you don't actually have to give them the money it's like it's a you don't actually have to have the money fractional reserve lending right yes and so you as long as you have enough to cover maybe 10 percent, if someone calls in your your deposits that they have with you you're fine um so you can take the deposits you take in issue more than what they're worth as debt to people and you just have on your balance sheet you've got a a negative that is saying well you've lent out more than you have but you go that's fine we're going to get interest from it that'll cover the costs we're we're solvent because we got lots of money our asset balance sheet is looking fine. Nothing terrible has happened, so everything's fine. But as you do this and you issue more and more debt, you create the effect that you become more and more vulnerable. And so I think during the global financial crisis, like I think Deutsche Bank, maybe one of the French banks, or something like a 3% turn against them makes them insolvent because they've just ramped it up to the nth degree of issued so much debt that even a small shift against them will mean they become insolvent because they just can't cover it. And I, wasn't there a law about this somewhere? Because I, what I think has happened, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if either of us are expert finance, finance people, but it seems like these banks that are taking deposits, usually what a bank that takes deposits is able to do, from my understanding, is that they can fractionally reserve lend to people within that economy, right? So mm. if they take on, if someone deposits $100 and they have fractional reserve lending policy of 10%, they take on $100, they're able to then lend 900 Yes. Right? So they have a, they have 10% of the, of the, sorry, they're able to lend 1000 because they have 10% of what they've lent. Yeah. So they're essentially able to multiply their deposits by 10 lend it out to people at an interest rate to make a make a profit and that's the limit on it but usually that would be on like savings and loans banks but mm. it seems like what's happened here is they have taken deposits issued debt to themselves used that debt to buy other people's debt so they've used money that like a loan that they've given themselves so someone's Deposited a hundred dollars, they've given themselves a loan for a thousand. Used that thousand dollars to invest in something. So they've 
they've bought, uh, let's say they've bought a $1,000 piece of stock. Yeah. Right? So someone's given them $100, they've issued themselves a loan for $1,000 and then bought something that is ostensibly an asset. Mm. Usually you would consider that an asset on a balance sheet, yeah. right? But they also have the debt, debt on their balance sheet. So really, there's... It seems like they've still only got the hundred dollars. Yeah, it sounds to zero. They've only got a hundred dollars, and they have this big issue. But they actually have a liability to themselves, themselves. of a thousand dollars. In terms of how they actually do it, I don't know. Oh, this is so I, fascinating. The the finance world has probably some of the best mathematicians in the world because they need them for, for running these little scams effectively, <laughs> um, and they get paid better than professors do. Um, so. In terms of how they actually do it, I don't know. But one part of this is the fact you're saying say, savings and loans bank. There's used to be somewhat of a divide, especially in America, between you kind of just your every mom and pop bank, savings and loans, and the kind of finance uh, area. And I think it was the Glass Steel Act in America that either they either abolished the act or they put it in. Whatever it was, it, was, it kind of removed that divide. That's what I remember hearing. The fact that like a savings and loan could then be, what do they call it? An institutional investor or something? Mm. An investment bank. Investment bank. Right. Yeah. So savings you then and loan have bank and- all the, and that's part of the problem of why it affects the rest of the economy. If it was just a, you know, a small subset of where there's investment banks that played stupid games and they went bust, it's like, well, it's going to hurt the economy, but it's not the end of the world. But if they're now, their balance sheets are now attached to your deposits as a just a normal person in the economy, their losses then Get Translate back to you, right? Back, back to you, because they need to cover their losses. And they need right. to use your money to do it. Um, or they just don't have enough money in their system to have the deposit available for you when you go up to the, you go up to them and say, I need my 100 bucks. And like, yeah, sorry, we had some other things we had to cover. So how about you come back next week? And you're like, no, I need to eat. So give me my 100 bucks. Right. Um, so that's another part of this is that because they're so big and they have become integrated on the bank and loan side of things, as well as the investment side of things, they then this kind of exacerbates the risk of the economy. So it seems like the answer to that question is through some sort of financial trickery, yes. they were able to generate the funds to buy more Greek debt. Exactly. So they've essentially given themselves, they've issued more debt to themselves to buy debt from other people. Mm. My next question was about the balance sheet, because you mentioned in the podcast that you had some of these these large banks that had balance sheets that were essentially equivalent in size to the GDP of the economy. Yes. Which the GDP, from my understanding, is the total value of all the goods and services produced in the economy Economy added together, right? Yeah, in, in one year. In one year. Yeah, sorry, yeah. So, so the GDP of Australia well, might be, you know, some like $14 trillion or something, something like that. And that's what it produces in one year. Right. And you have a 3% growth. Or like they say, ten percent growth. Then you add, you know, fourteen and four hundred billion or whatever it is, um, and that's basically how we grow over time. It's like we have this amount of stuff we made this year. We compare it to what we made the next year. Are we growing? Are we going lower or higher? And that's the basic sum of like, are we doing better? Um, now, that's not perfect because you can tweak that insofar as if you have more people in your economy, you can make the economy bigger because you've got more workers and you're making more stuff. But is the is it as good as the economy? Are you as wealthy as you were last year? Well, maybe not because the extra bit was just a bunch of people working that had just joined the economy and made some extra stuff. That's yeah. the kind of per capita GDP is then where you're like, okay, are you actually wealthy? Because China might have a huge GDP, but its GDP per capita might not reach what the US or Luxembourg or something like that has where there's lots and lots of money with very few people. And so there's also, yeah. it's a, 
a gross measure that's not perfect. But it seems like even GDP per capita, which mm. would be GDP per person in that economy, isn't necessarily a great measure of wealth. And this is only anecdotal evidence from mm. my life. Having lived in Taiwan for four years, I was constantly comparing the the economic figures for, I mean, and I'm not talking deep, right? Literally just GDP, yeah. total GDP and GDP per capita. Taiwan and Australia have essentially the same population. I think they differ less than 10%. Mm -hmm. So nominally 23 to 25 million. Mm -hmm. So I think Australia now is 25, Taiwan yeah. is around 23. Nominally equivalent populations. Absolute GDP is actually about the same. Mm -hmm. GDP per capita, obviously, if the population is about the same and the GDP is the same, the GDP per capita is actually nominally the same. Yeah. They're right next to each other on all of yeah. those lists on Wikipedia. Yet, Australian people are so much more wealthy. Mm. And let's say, even if you just look at incomes and, and maybe not mean or median income, I think probably median income would be... Yeah. Uh, like a, a better measure, but definitely just living there. You're like, well, people here get paid nothing mm. compared to in Australia. Obviously, it's a the, the whole the country as a whole is very well developed. Yeah. But I look at what someone would get paid as like a university graduate, for instance. Here, depending on what you what you do, if you finish engineering, you might expect you know sixty to eighty thousand dollars would be something reasonable to expect mm. per year. Sixty to eighty thousand Australian dollars per year which compared to Taiwan is like unimaginable. I mean, that's a really huge amount of money that they that a fresh graduate couldn't really hope to earn yeah, in a close, year. Yeah. Yet the GDP and the GDP per capita are nominally the same. So I'm like, well, what, how, do you, how do you measure how wealthy people are it's, in the country? Well, it's a few things. There's some things can be, it, is a, it could be a quirk of um, the, the stats are not perfect. And so you might look at, you know, what is the value of your currency? And are you able to buy things in the open market as easily? So it, it may just be easier for Australia to buy things uh, and bring it into the country that makes it, you know, able to live better than in Taiwan, for instance. Um, it could also just be a matter of the wealth is not evenly distributed. I, that You definitely feel a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you've got the same amount of money, but it is concentrated in a different manner and is concentrated at the top. And then if you're the graduate, you're looking to earn $30,000 and the CEO is getting several million or hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and it might be more kind of spread out in Australia. I don't honestly know the facts for Taiwan, so I don't know. That would be my guess based okay. on what you've just told me right. as probably some of the reasons of why it is that way. It could be all sorts of things. It could be that the government uh, is taking in money and using it in such a way that it's more effective uh, in one place than the other. And so you may get more bang for your buck in Australia potentially. Uh, I'd be somewhat skeptical of that just because we are such a large country geographically. The costs for maintaining a spread up population, I would figure would be higher. And so I thought we would have more inefficiencies, but it could well be that being in such a small location, you maybe you need investment from overseas. And so maybe there's some, a whole bunch of debt that you need to cover. And so you'll make a lot of your economy is just making enough money to cover off your debt. I don't know what the situation is. One thing that struck me and was sort of going down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. One thing that struck me was looking at the profitability of the huge companies in that country. So in Taiwan, obviously, well, not obviously, but probably probably the most well-known Taiwanese company is Foxconn, 
which makes most electronics. So the mm. most notable one would be the iPhone. They're, I believe, number one in yep. the Taiwanese economy. Their profit, I think, is fairly high. But then all of the other, all of the other companies in the Taiwanese economy, very, very high revenues. But the percentage of their revenue that was profit was yep. much, much lower compared to the equivalent Australian companies. Yep. You know, Australian companies, some of the large ones, making billions of dollars of profit per year mm. off. A similar amount of revenue, whereas it seemed that that that's a product of supply chains, effectively. Okay. So in the case of the iPhone, it's a good point uh, and worth worth moving off the main track for a little bit to think about. The iPhone is effectively developed in the U.S., and so Apple has its developers, and it gets if you look at the, the I think it's about thirty forty percent maybe of the profit of the the end result, um, and then it then delegates out pretty much everything else about how they actually make the damn thing. And so one place will make the screens, one place will provide the raw materials to make the, the case, another place might be building the, the circuit boards. Um, and that happens in various countries. And because, and this is, I'm not gonna go even further because you could talk about the reason why this exists, but because it's so easy to switch from one company to another, they don't have any market power. And so those companies that are earning very little are basically have to take what Apple's willing to give them. So they, they essentially have very low margins they have because, low margins there's, so much because competition. there's so much competition. So they have no market power. They are price takers. They will take what Apple will give them. If they don't, they will go to someone else. And so they are subjected to that. So they have low profitability. And then that all gets packaged up, uh, sent to China, and then gets shipped from China. And then it looks like a an import uh, from America's point of view, and that's part of Trump's whole, we're importing too much, the trade balance is wrong. It's like, well, if you actually look at the profit margins, the profits being made in the US, predominantly as a single share, is being made in the US. So it's a bit of a misnomer. But yeah, so that's that's why most likely they so have low profits. A lot, of, a lot of companies producing a lot of revenue, but getting very, very low margins yep. on their... Yeah, just turnover. Their, right. You're keeping people in, in, in employed, but in the day, you're not growing that much. So you're spinning your much. wheels spinning in a sense wheels. and not really moving forward a great it, deal. It's, I mean, it's better having it than not. If right. if you have an economy where you can have hundred people, hundred thousand people employed, um, and making ten percent profit, or having a hundred people employed with hundred percent profit, I would prefer having the hundred thousand people employed. Right. So back to the balance sheets <laughs> of those European banks. So them being the same size as the GDP. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting. So that would be that, and if I remember back to Economics 101, <laughs> balance sheet would be assets minus liabilities. Yeah. So what I'm guessing, what I'm guessing it means when you say that you have a balance sheet equivalent to the size of the GDP, I'm guessing what that means is their liabilities were equal to the size of the GDP. I honestly don't know. What, okay. When I was reading the information, I they just said balance sheet. I'm not sure what part of it they were saying their liabilities or their assets or the sum thereof, because they could, because I, I don't know what the actual stats were. They could have been saying their assets and their liabilities added together were equal to the same sum, or they could have been saying just the assets or just the liabilities. So I'm not sure exactly what the answer to that would be. Mm. Regardless, any way you cut it, it's very dangerous because you are so important to the economy that if you come down, you're going to bring the economy with you. Well, then in that case, it would make sense that it would be the liabilities. And this gets back to my earlier question mm. about how you actually determine what is it, what happens on a balance sheet if you've taken $100 of liquid currency 
and converted it into $1,000 of debt and then bought a $1,000 investment with yep. it. Because usually, I think if I was doing my personal finance, if I had $1,000 worth of stock, right? Yep. That would be an asset on yes. my balance sheet. My balance sheet would be $1,000, yes. right? And if I, if I had a $1,000 debt to yep. cover that, my balance sheet would be zero because yep. I would have- I would cancel have, each other out. Yeah. But, so I don't. I just don't but, understand. So, so, so yeah, it, it may be a matter of there was just the liabilities. Looking how mm. how exposed they were, but regardless, because, yeah. With in in this case, your your asset is only worth a thousand dollars if you're able to actually cash it in for a thousand dollars at any point, right? Because if you're able to cancel out that liquid thing, and that was one of my questions, is what were the rules on the Greek debt that they issued? Presumably. And again, I'm not an expert in bonds by any means, but I presume that with a bond, you can't force the issuer of the bond to give you back your principal. You have to hold the bond until, until it matures. Until it right? matures, that's correct. Otherwise, you forfeit. You forfeit the principal, or uh, I'm. I don't know. I don't think there's anything you can do but wait. The only thing you can do, though, sell it on the market. Sell right? it on the market, someone else. Right. But the value of your asset as it appears in your balance sheet is what the market determines it to be. So that's the problem because when you all go to sell right. it, it goes to zero and you're only left with $1,000 of liability. You don't have that $1,000 right. asset anymore. So it really depends on the liquidity of your investment, right? Because if yeah. you're if you have a guarantee from the bondholder, right? If you don't hold this to maturity, but I, actually maybe that was it. I, I, I remember that maybe being a thing. If you call on a bond, what you do is you forfeit any any potential interest that you yeah. would have earned up until that point, yeah. but you get your principal back. But I guess, and this was mainly about the Greek debt, like what, what were the rules? I guess maybe that's something you don't know either. But I think if there were two options, right? Option one being that you can't call that mm -hmm. debt back. You basically, you forfeit the ability. The only thing that you can do is wait. And the only way to get the principal back would be to sell it on the market mm -hmm. or option two where you call the debt but everyone's calling the debt both sort of have the same the same impact right because if someone has issued a whole bunch of debt and they've really they have no capital to pay it back it's not really the same thing but the end point being that if you try and sell it on a market where it's worth zero or you try and call back a principle that the person doesn't have, either way, you're getting zero. Exactly. As you were saying that, and you were getting to the second point, that's exactly what I was going to say, but you hit it and nailed the head. You've got perfectly logical argument. If you try, if you had some way, mechanism with, with which to get, all right, I'm not going to get the, the interest, but I just want the principle back to cover my debts. Even if you went to the Greek government, everyone else is going to the Greek government and they're like, well, we have $2.50 here. We, how much, who gets it first kind of thing? Like, there's no way they're going to be paying back the millions upon millions of euros that they would owe. So either way you cut it, they're in dire straits. Right. So that, that, was, that, that was that point. What did I have here? Point five. So GFC in the US, basically huge losses to those European banks yep. that had potentially had investments in the US. Yes. That in order to cover those losses, they needed to sell debt that they bought from other people mm -hmm. trying to get back their principal in order to cover that. Why did they want to sell Greek debt first? This was another thing that came up when I was listening. You were mentioning that they were going to start with Greek debt and then move to Italy. Italy's too big and then Ireland and things like that. Why in that order? Okay. If you have a choice between holding on to German debt or Greek debt, which one do you choose? <laughs> 
Right. I guess I guess it's the the, it's the, the the potential risk of default on the debt, right? Yes. And so if you have to choose which you want to hold, you're going to hold the least risky. You're going to sell that last. Like ironically, I, it being the U.S. that had defaulted on their yes. stuff, and then you're going the complete opposite. Yeah. Hmm. So okay. so that's the way you go. It's a couple of things. One things because the Greek economy is smaller, and so it is. Let can be less able to pay back and things like it's it is more risky and so you just want to get rid of it asap because it's like you're just getting rid of it as soon as possible um and the other part is like who do you trust like what's what's more stable when you have to come to dealing with your debt and your bank asset sheet your german debt there's no much point selling that because that is kind of the basis of your bank you know that's that's generating your basic revenue so you're going to sell the stuff that is risky and just try and get it off your balance sheet as quickly as possible. Risky, even though it's got a similar yield. Well, until until that point when people realized, oh, wait, Greece is not Germany, that there are differences in the economy. Yeah, it seems so strange. It seems like there was a pair of glasses when, mm. oh, look at this yield. This must be yeah. a low risk. And then as soon as, as, soon as the US defaults, you take off the glasses and like, actually, this is the same... This is the same bond that should have been paying me 20%. Exactly. And then you try and get rid of it. Yeah. And then, okay. so yeah, it's, it's basically that. It's so you're essentially going, you're going down the list of high risk to low, low risk, risk and just trying to get, get rid, rid of, of get that rid of debt. As soon as possible. But everyone's in the same boat. They're all trying to get rid of that debt. They're yep. all trying to get rid of those bonds. The market isn't going to give you any money for it because no. everyone's selling. So it's yeah. worthless. The government that issued the bond can't give you back your principal because they've it's, 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 it's in a road somewhere. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where... Wow. And the same thing with the banks. So the banks owe each other and, and they're all trying to call their debts and no one has the money. Like no, It's like like we said before, the fact that they loan out $1,000 but they have $100 in the bank. If everyone comes for their money at the same time, they don't have the money on them. So you can't... They and the Governments are the same. If everyone came together and said, Greece, you owe us, give us the money that you, we gave you, give us this now. They're like, no, we've tied it up in this asset and we've tied it up doing this thing and it's, it's part of our running costs. We can't give you the money. It's like it's, the, the system runs and runs and it's fine while it's running. But if you suddenly make it stop and like check with everyone, hey, could you cover that? And could you cover that? And like, well, no, of course not. That's not how the system works. Everyone just looks at you funny. But you'd think that would be like an integral part. You know, if you were running a company, well, which these which these well, countries and banks are, yeah. you'd think you'd be able to look at some sort of sensor, some sort of sensor somewhere, some sort of accountant saying like, well, I don't know about this. Like we, we have all this principle that we can't get back because it seems like the reason that all this debt was bought, all these bonds were bought initially was that people were looking at this and saying, there's less interest rate risk here. Mm. So because they can't inflate their way out of paying an actual interest rate, yep. right? The interest rate risk is low. Therefore, the yield on the bond is low. Yet the principal risk, the risk of at any point being able to get back your principal, that seems to be completely different. And it seems that in, when it's going well, what you want is something that's definitely going to give you a good return, regardless of whether you need the principal or not. Because yeah. you're like, I'm rolling in money. I don't need yeah. the principal. I'm not interested in the principal. I'm interested the the profit I'm making off the right. principal is what I'm worried about. And then as soon as you make a loss, it's like, oh, oh shit. Principal is very I important I need principal. <laughs> I need the principal. I don't care about the profit. I'll yeah. forego the profit in order to get the principal. But that's. it seems like 
the yield is not necessarily related to being able to get your principal back. It seems that the yield was more related to whether or not you could inflate, inflate your, your way, way out, out of paying of the interest. Yeah. So it seems like two different... It's like a peace chief and a war chief. It's sort of like economy going well eyeglasses yes. and economy going badly eyeglasses. In one, you're concerned about the profit and the other one, you're concerned about, can I actually get my money back? Yeah, it's, it's the whole bull and bear market type okay. of view of things. And the fact that when things are going well... The as I said before, you know, it makes sense to go with the crowd and just go for the extra money and things like that. And so, when you're running any type of business, even like today, if you're in Australia, you're running a business. If you don't, if like you, another business is thinking about buying you, and you don't have a certain amount of debt, they'll think that you're you're there's something wrong with you. If you don't have a certain have, amount of yeah. debt, so oh, because you're not investing, or you're, you're not using it to try and grow yourself. And so, if you're a niche industry. And there's only so big you can get, then that's perfectly fine to stop. But some people may see it differently. But in this case, yeah, it is considered healthy to have some kind of amount of debt. And so that's the kind of people you're operating with. It's like it's it's about the numbers, not sometimes thinking about why. And so if you look at a, a company that does, I don't know, maybe solar panels in Australia, uh, except, except for the part where we subsidized it, it's rather a niche industry. Uh, and before kind of the global financial crisis, it was a niche industry. We had part of our response to that was we made, we subsidized solar panels and things like that. But before that, it was a niche industry. And so is there much point taking out debt as a solar installer if you can't really grow because not that many people want solar panels? There's not much point buying a bigger factory to build more solar panels or importing them or like... So I guess the perception of debt comes back to your perception of your ability to grow or your yeah. potential for growth. Potential for growth. And so if you just look at that company and say, why do they don't have any debt? Ah, oh, that's a terrible company. You're missing the point. You're not looking at what's actually on the ground. And that's what right. people do. People look at the numbers, they don't look what's actually on the ground. So I guess what, what's that? the difference between the balance sheet and the cash, cash flow well, I, statement I, or I something? I would say it's the difference between um, Greek able to inflate its way out of, of interest and actually looking at the Greek economy. Okay. Kind of the, when you talk about principle, I'm thinking about the Greek economy. I'm thinking right. the Greek yeah. economy is not the it's same. What, that's what will actually pay back the principle, back right? Up. So if, if the Greek yeah. economy is being artificially inflated by debt, do we think it's really when, when it starts slowing down, do we think it's really going to be able to pay back this debt the same way the German economy is? Why are we giving them money? Like this isn't a smart idea. But you're in the, you're in the number zone. You're like because yeah, you don't you don't predict the fact that the US is going to go into a GFC. You don't see it. You don't, don't see, see the it, potential, and you don't care anyway because you're mm. looking for your next next quarter profit. You're looking for next quarter bonus. So you don't have the incentive to care about what happens in three years when the GFC happens. You made your money and you leave. Okay, so now we're at the point where the it's the GFC has happened. Yep, we've realized that we can't sell our Greek debt. Yeah. We're not going to get the principal back. If we can't sell it, then our bank goes under. Yes. So the decision was, in order to get the money for this debt to the German bank, mm -hmm. for instance, rather than give the money to the German bank... In a bailout of the bank. In a bailout of the bank, mm -hmm. being, you know... What the US did. Yeah. Potentially being footed by the taxpayer of exactly. that country. Exactly. What we're going to do is we're going to give money to the Greek government mm -hmm. and the Greek government is going to buy back the bonds and give the principal to the German banks, essentially making those bonds liquid, giving cash back to the German banks so they can then cover their losses. Yep. 
Is that is that how it happened? The money was given to buy back the debt? Basically. Okay. And, and the reason why this is different to the American situation is because there's something a little different in the, EC, uh, in the EU and that they have um, the EBC, the European Banking Commission, and they have basically EU monetary policy is run by the EU. It's not run by any single government. But it is still a central bank effectively. And so in a normal central bank, it is the lender of last resort. And so if everything goes bad, it will lend. It will make sure the economy keeps going because if you don't, it all comes crashing down. And so in America, the American um, central bank will go to the companies. and the U.S. Federal Reserve, Federal right? Reserve. So yep. they'll, they'll go to companies. Like they left a couple die. Um, but they'll go to the company and say, we will give you money. We'll bail you out. We will give you liquidity and you can keep on running. And then once you get back on your feet, you can pay us back. The Europeans didn't do that. And part of it is because it's, it has a bit of a strain of the Germans in it now. And they are very much worried about uh, inflation. They don't like throwing lots of money at things. And they also just, for whatever reason, they didn't really have a commitment to being lender of last resort. Everyone up until this point, as part of the reason why the yields dropped to, to nominal levels, they thought the European Union is the lender of last resort. It's going to cover us if things go wrong. And you know, we're fine, we're covered. And that's the too big to fail problem is that if you have too big to fail, you have a perverse incentive to get really big. Because if I get really big off Greek debt, I'm too big to fail. They have to bail me about. I'm fine. Right, so the lender of last resort will save me, basically. But the problem is the Europeans didn't want to do that initially. And so the banks are suddenly like, but you need to, otherwise we'll collapse. And so instead, the German government was talking about giving money to the Greeks and that that's their way of kind of lending by last resort. Eventually, EU, despite its reluctance initially through sheer kind of pig-headedness, decided, okay, we should actually do that. And they um, did some quantitative easing, you know, basically printing money, giving money to people who needed it and acting as a lender of last resort. But initially, they weren't doing that and that freaked everyone the hell out. So, and but who were they being the lender of last resort to? So the the... The German bank, let's just take one German bank, had Greek debt. They wanted to convert that Greek debt back into the, pr- the principal so they could pay their, you know, essentially cover their losses that yeah. they made in the US, right? And not fail yeah. and actually have some liquidity mm. that they were able to, you know, give people money to buy food, right? So that conversion of the Greek debt to back to the principal, right? Essentially buying back the debt. Who who lent money to whom and how? So, so the Greek government has issued the debt yeah. in order for them to buy back the debt. The Greek government needs the money. Mm. From whom did they get the money? I can't recall exactly if okay. it was the German government or it was the like the ECB, like uh, EBC. The yeah, um, I can't remember exactly who did it, but it's it's kind of a moot point insofar as the they e- owe someone money. Well, it's kind of a moot point insofar as the EU is basically run by the Germans now. <laughs> so it's basically the same right. thing. Um, the Germans, after kind of reunification, were kind of still getting their legs underneath them. Uh, and the French kind of were running the show. And over time, the Germans, those those good old Germans, became very productive. They get a one, you know, one full economy they now have instead of being split in two. They become very powerful. And now they've basically taken over the EU in terms of kind of like they are the major economy in it that is kind of the the pole position that kind of directs where it's going to go. So regardless, 
even if it's the EU bailing them out, German taxpayers are probably going to be paying the taxes to the EU to cover that. So it's kind of a, a moot point. Uh, it's more of just, you know, what, what way can they financially finagle it to get it where it needs to go? Uh, but in the wow. end, it's basically the Germans um, who are doing it and they're doing it to save themselves and, and everyone else. Um, but yeah, that's basically what it is. So I'm just trying to picture what happened from the Greek perspective. So let's say I'm, I'm just going to use random numbers sure. here, right? You've issued a billion dollars. I mean, obviously that's you know massively under what it was. You've issued a billion dollars worth of bonds mm-hmm. to Germany or to this German bank, right? You've issued. Yep. They've so the German bank yep. has paid you one billion dollars. One billion dollars. They they get two percent back right so you're on the hook for a billion dollars plus two percent right yeah yeah so what would that be like one one billion billion and 20 million million? yeah Yeah. so one billion and 20 million is what you owe you have a liability and you have one billion dollars in cash yeah right so now the germans want their one billion dollars back and you've already spent it yeah so you you would to pay them back you would then need to take another loan for a billion dollars. Exactly. So you would then be on the hook for two billion and twenty million dollars. Yes. Is that basically what happened in the bailout? Yeah, basically. But, okay. But you still need probably need extra just to deal with the fact that your economy is suffering and you need money to kind of cover your costs because you're probably not getting the same revenues. So at a minimum, they've doubled their debt. Uh, no, they their their debt in the first half they pay off the if the banks are paid off. That's that oh yeah, of course. Gone. So it's just but then, but then you're still if if you've you've moved it around so right. that the German banks are liquid. That's about it. So you still owe the same amount at the minimum, but there is the added fact that after this point, your value of your bonds is going. No one's going to touch you now because you're too risky. So the old liquidity you had of like oh we'll take a we're right. taking out that uh, billion dollars of cash that you had. Yeah, to, it's like yeah. this year we're going to take a hundred hundred million of debt next year maybe 102 million debt just keep clocking it over and the economy's growing great so it's fine now you get to the point where the economy's not going so well no one's going to touch you with a five-foot pole so you can't get the normal money that you need to run your economy that you were originally planning for prior to this and it means that you then have to rely on external sources in this case the eu to bail you out and to keep you solvent and you do this you, t- you take that money because you know, you need to give it to them because they're going to they're gonna be very upset with you if you don't give the money back to their banks. So you take the money, you can just move through your country, back up to the Germans. The German bank is happy, life is great, but you're still stuck with debt, plus probably more because you no longer have the old, you know, avenues. You don't have, and your don't have debt liquid is, either. Your debt is more expensive now, so you have to take out... Um, more to cover you like say say beforehand you like a hundred dollars you have two percent interest you might have to take a little bit more to cover the interest you can kind of pay your own loan back with your loan and just kind of roll it forward right was that like a ponzi scheme or something yeah it's kind yeah. of a ponzi scheme but now you have to cover 20 percent, so you need even more debt to kind of cover your old debt and no one wants to really give you money so you really have to, you owe the germans even more and more and more money so the debt that was issued by the germans to mm. to cover the the debt that, that their, their banks, banks had, had yeah was that a higher interest rate than what the well, Greeks? Then this is oh, what man, all the politics is... about, is the okay. negotiations over how much we owe, should it just be a handout, um, where the money goes, how it gets spent. That's all kind of the idea of austerity, the idea that we're going to tell you how to spend the money because um, we're going to make sure you pay us back. But there's an aside to this, is that 
the, the Greeks got all this money, but if you're in Greece and you have all this money for your, you, know, you, you maybe make cars in Greece. I don't know why you want to do that, but whatever reason, you want to try and build cars in Greece. You get all this money, so you can build a factory and build cars. Who are you competing with? Because you're in the same economic block as the Germans. So you're going to compete with the Germans? Are you serious? Not a chance. So you, you don't compete with the Germans. So what do you do? You use that money and you buy a German car because it runs better and it's cheaper than if you try to make it. So the money that the Germans gave you to boost your economy, you spend on German cars boosting their economy. So you really, that was German banks investing in the German economy via Greece. And now, now they're essentially paying themselves back via Greece. Yeah. It's a, wow. So it's like the Germans were very happy to give the Greeks money so the Greeks could give the Germans money and buy their cars. So how, how was this sold? How was this bailout rather than saying, let's bail out the German bank? Mm. No, 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 no. That's, that's not that's, the right way. No. We're going to have upset. to do it via, via Greece. Yes. How, how at that point was it sold to Greece? How was it sold to Germany? How was it okay. sold to the, to the EU, basically? Because it seems like a lot of people would be up in arms about saying, this is, what, this is what's happened and this is our solution. People are like, well, the first part didn't happen. They didn't explain what happened. Ah, okay. They just said, you know, look at Greece. It's been terrible. They owe our banks with this debt. Um, they can't they, pay it back. They can't pay it back. Their economy is going to crash. It's going to drag the EU down with it. We need to stop this, but we're going to get them. So don't you worry, German citizen. We're going to make sure that we install austerity measures on them. They're going to pay their taxes and they're going to pay us back. So don't you worry. So you right, do that. So it was more of a placating measure for the German public yes. or the public in. Yes. And how did, how did the, the Greeks, Greeks react? The Greeks had um, riots. They had mass civil disobedience they had uh governments indirect response to indirect, direct response to, to this austerity measure, right yeah, okay austerity measures being imposed by government they didn't want there were several bailouts they didn't generally want any of them um right because under the, the conditions they're sort they of two separate things well were were the austerity measures attached to the bailout or yes. did it happen yes happen that's, later that's the negotiations we're like uh, okay. we'll give you this money but you have to play by our rules but it seems like even at the bailout point the Greeks would be like, well, no. Well, that's what some of them wanted. Okay. But at the same time, you have to... It's apocalyptic at this point in terms of the effect in your economy. Apocalyptic to the Greek economy? Well, everyone. But okay. every, it's a bluffing game at that point. Who's willing to take the pain more? Ah. But no one wants to take the pain. So you come to some agreement. That's what politics is all about, is negotiating oh. different positions of so power. So it's essentially Greece arguing, arguing directly against Germany yeah. in order to try to determine who... Who seeds first, basically, yeah. right? Oh, man. And so there's mass demonstrations. There's basically the removal of government by the Germans and the French. They basically... Removal of the, removal of the Greek, Greek government. Removal of the Greek government. Um, it's effectively, you know, a coup, basically, in terms of like... Wow. They just, they're running German, the Greek politics. Like, if, you, if you don't do this, we will you know, pressure you and do things and you, you have to go along with this. And then if you don't... Nice then, country you got there, Greece. Yeah, be a shame if something. anything were to happen to it. Exactly. Wow, so, that's so, that's so you, gangster, man. Yeah, I'll, you wouldn't you wouldn't expect a German to to do something so gangster. <laughs> no, they would never do something like that. Wow. Pressure on another country, never. They are lovely. Now. Wow. Yeah, they seem so so lovely taking on all those refugees. Yeah, yet they have Greece under a thumb. Well, it's that's pretty, about money. Um, ah, okay. Yeah. Re refugees, you know, it would be costly, but it's not, it's not the German economy coming to a halt. It's good marketing, isn't it? Yeah. Ooh. So so 
they sell it to their people. And it's a very funny thing that I think, I think it was Merkel that said it, the idea that they're going to have the same kind of fiscal conservatism as the Swabian housewife. The idea that Swabian, Swabian, isn't that the how it's pronounced? It's kind of southern Germany, kind of Bavarian type area. Oh, okay, Swab- Swabia sure. is like an old, um, an old region in Germany. Okay, uh, I think it was an own its own principality kind of thing during the Holy Roman Empire. And the idea that it is cons- it's kind of like southern conservative Germany. It it takes the money in, it budgets properly, and it pays the money out. It doesn't take on too much debt. It does the right thing. So so they were they were saying Greece needs to behave this like way. Like a Swabian household. It's like a very toxic thing to say because it's saying we are just better than you. We know how to be fiscally responsible. You need to behave like, behave us, like us, regardless of the fact that our banks were really what yeah. precipitated and, this. And the fact that it doesn't like make any sense logically, <laughs> like you as a as a family i can't like take in another family and tax them into generationally for a hundred years like where you can have a migrant come into your country and you can tax them into generationally for years like it's not the same thing at all you if i i can't issue my own currency in my house i can't like just issue myself a hundred bucks and say yeah now i've got a hundred bucks a, a global, like a, a national economy, is not the same as a house or a, you know, a housewife dealing with her local home budget. It is a ridiculous thing to say, but it was just part of this ridiculous part rhetoric, of rhetoric right? that was happening at the time. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's that kind of silly stuff that came out of. I'm pretty sure it was An- Angela Merkel, a physicist um, trained, you know, in, in terms of degree, pretty clever person, chan- obviously, very clever woman. Um, Chancellor of, G- of Germany is telling the Greek people they need to. <laughs> have their budget like a Swabian housewife. It's a bit silly when you think about it, but yeah, at the it time, it would have resonated. It with resonated the brilliantly. People. It was right. R- the right thing to say to the, the German people. And so the the Greeks responded by having riots and stuff yeah. like that. And that was my question about. So this is one thing that you covered in the podcast was this idea of what austerity is. So mm. austerity, from my understanding of it, was essentially saying, I will be more fiscally responsible by by one you know, spending less than I take in through taxes and increasing taxes in order to pay back this bailout debt yep. that I've received, that I've been forced into. Yes. I've been forced into this bailout debt and I have to put in these austerity measures, which, as you mentioned in the podcast, have a deflation, well, not deflationary, sorry, a contracting effect on the economy. So you have measures that, you know, increase increase taxation, reduce spending, which to a developing economy would essentially, I guess, make it grind to a halt exactly. in a lot of ways in order to pay back a debt. Yeah. So it's do do all the things that would prevent you, that would essentially slow you down in paying back the debt yeah. in order to pay back the debt that we force on you. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly oh, wow. right. There's kind of two ways to pay off debt. It is either use inflation to cheat your way out of it. Uh, and if you've got a huge debt, like after World War One, you can use hyperinflation or you can grow. And you can make the debt, you just pay it over time, the debt gets smaller relative to the size of your economy because you get bigger and bigger and bigger and you just pay it off. Um, if you have control of the monetary policy, they can't inflate the ray out of it. So the only way they can pay you back is through growing. You then turn around and tell them, stop spending money and take in more taxes, which is contractionary. So that means you're, if you're the, the random person on the street and you get told, yeah, we're not going to be able to... You work for the public sector. It's like, we're cutting, we're slashing your wages by 20%. We're also increasing your taxes by 10%. This is... We're doing this because we need to pay back the, the, the Germans. How happy are you going to be? One, you're going to riot. And two, you're not, you're not going to be able to spend as much. So you can't 
boost the economy. You're going to spend less money. There's less money going in the economy. It's going out of the economy. It's going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And um, one of the things I said in the podcast, and it's kind of a very simple mathematical way of thinking about it, makes it really simple. If you have um, your economy as uh, kind of a fraction, if you say on on top of it is... um, the debt, and so it might be one. So you have you know one debt, whatever that is. One unit of debt. One unit of debt, and the bottom of your economy is uh, a two, and so it's like well, it's fifty percent of your economy is the debt. It's like all right, you can deal with that probably, but if you do austerity and contract your economy, it goes from two down to one, and so it's a hundred percent of your economy is now the debt. The debt hasn't changed in any meaningful way. It's still the, the hundred billion or whatever it was. Right. Um, but now your capacity to pay it back has doubled in in in. It's halved in ability, and like it's it's, you, it's become double the amount of debt than it once right. was before, just relative to your economy. Which means doing austerity makes your economy weaker, which then balloons the kind of debt to GDP ratio. Which they then said, "Look at these damn Greeks, where the ridiculous sovereign debt, their their government debt is terrible. Look how bad they are." It's like no, because you made them use austerity, which contracted their economy, which meant relative to the debt you, you put them on them, it's now not able to pay back the debt and it looks worse and wow. worse and worse. So really the... It's self-defeating. Putting, it's putting austerity in there is really only pragmatic in the sense that it removes blame from yes. the big banks. Yes. So really, pragmatically, if you were to take politics out of it, you've made the debt harder to pay back. Mm-hmm. That's in no one's interest. Nobody's. That's in no one's interest apart from the people who might be blamed for being you know, complicit in causing this crisis. And that was my next question is, in your opinion, who do you think bears the responsibility for the situation that the whole EU economy found itself in? Um, in the end, I would probably say the government. Uh, Which the government, government? All, all, all the governments involved. All the governments. Principally the EU and the German government. Primarily because... So the German government and the German, German government. German government and the German government, yes. <laughs> One and the same. But there's two of us. We look identical, but never mind. Mm. Um, I would say them just because the government's part of... People think of markets as being this like just popping out of the ground. But in many ways... The, a market is set by the politics it exists within. You have regulations, you have set, setting up of systems that say this is how things work. It's the rules of the game. Rules of the game. Right? So the government sets the rules of the game. You can make an argument on the international system, it's different governments working together into that. But still then, it's all the governments, regardless if it's one or, or multiple. If you're setting the rules of the game and they make perverse incentives, that's kind of your fault. I mean, you can make an argument that we didn't see these things coming, we didn't know it was going to work out this particular way, but in the end, the fault is yours. And then you then double down on that with stupid policy for political sake. It is, again, your fault. So perverse incentives Mm -hmm. plus policy that are for political gains together. What are the perverse incentives that you're talking about specifically in this this case? So in this case, it would be too big to fail, letting them get that big. Um, How would you prevent that with policy? So you can set certain things like you separate finance from uh, your deposit and lending. So you split up your banks. Um, You can set um, sizes in terms of you can't, it's like a monopoly, anti-monopoly, antitrust type thing where you can't get too big. It's like much the same Whereas we don't want someone to become a monopoly. You have to split out into smaller things. We can't have all this new risk in one bank. You're too big to fail, that kind of thing. The same problem with um, setting 
people's bonuses and whatnot. Like you, you can't interfere that much in the economy. You can't say you can't set your bonuses there, but you can say like you are legally liable if things mess up. Right, that's and what actually, you mentioned in the podcast. Actually, right? go yeah. If you mess things up, we will jail you. Right, and what all was the people fail bail sent to jail. Yeah. So, yeah. so the classic thing is if you have a bank go bust, is it goes fail, you bail them out so it doesn't fail, and then you send them to jail. The people involved, the people responsible, at least you know the CEO who is running the joint. But in this case. Basically, no one went to jail in kind of either jurisdiction. In in the U.S. as well, did anyone the go US, to jail there? The U.S. There was like some mid-level trader in some random random business got thrown in jail. Oh, Pretty much no one else. Scapegoat. Yeah. Oh no. So, in this case, it was fail, bail, and then nothing. And so, what does that tell you in the future? That means I can do the same thing again. Moral um, hazard. Moral hazard trade effect. And so that's what uh, Mike Blythe, who does a lot of the work that I, what I'm talking about now, is a lot of it is based on his work. And he calls it the, the greatest moral hazard trade in human history. Um, you mean the, specifically in the, the EU this, or the US the, and the EU? Particularly the EU, but the you know, GBFC in general. Um, but particularly the EU is what he's reference, referencing to. And so, yeah, this is the idea that if you set up these perverse incentives... It's kind of your fault for setting them up. Like, How would this happen in Germany, though? You have this perception, like mm. Angela Merkel said, the Swabian housewife, that sort of thing. If they're pushing that image of themselves, and really they have a strong economy, they run basic, they run Europe, basically. Yeah. How is it that they could have a situation where a bank that exists within their jurisdiction is able to get themselves into so much debt? Again, I think it's a thing where you you tend to give people more credit than they're <laughs> worth. It's, it's this a, is my <laughs> fundamental mistake, I find. People, it's one of the problems when, because I have a background in economics, they make all these assumptions about rational actors and whatnot, and it's a bit of a, a, bit of a joke to make a rational actor assumptions. People will act rationally to a degree, but you, they don't think long-term as much. They tend to be short-term rational actors. They think about what's happening tomorrow and things like that, and they're looking at, well, things are going great, or you know, we maybe because if you're in... Uh, the current day, you don't believe in interfering with the markets too much. So you don't like, well, we want to say hands off. That's the best way. That's the best way to make money and whatnot. So you're not going to get too involved, not too, too many regulations. We're going to try and cut some of the regulations. You don't get too much involved. You can set up a situation where things are going fine. Everything's going great. It's like this great boom. We, it must be because of our policies are so good. So we're going to double down on them and cut more regulation. And you get kind of into this cycle where you think, I'm right, everything's going well, I'm going to double down on what I'm doing. And you create more and more risk because what you're doing is actually not the smart idea. It's just, it's kind of running along and it's running fine. But every time you take another year going by and nothing going wrong as a success, you're actually getting closer and closer to the cliff, but you're putting more blindfolds on every time, thinking, yeah, this is working great. Every time I walk forward, I, there's another piece of land in front of me, so let's put another blindfold on, because it right. works every time. So it's the gambler's fallacy. So a gambler's fallacy, yeah. that's interesting, yeah. I guess that no one is immune to that, not even Germany. No, no, nobody's right. immune to that. And, and part of it is, again, our fault as uh, constituents of nations, we vote often on short-term issues. I give some. I give people credit insofar as that there is rational ignorance. The idea that you know there is a good reason why most people don't know about naval policy. You don't have time to learn about naval policy. You have to pick up the kids. You've got to go to work. You don't have time to look at the nitty gritty of financial regulatory systems and, and markets and how they interact with the international markets and what should we be setting the tax rate at? What should we be setting the import taxes on cheese from from France at? Like maybe this is a big issue. That, like no, you don't have time for that. So 
in that regard, I kind of give citizens a free pass and not holding their politicians to account. Um, so the responsibility maybe falls on the, the elected officials, the to, financial regulators. Yeah, it's, it's, it's partly public officials insofar as that they're employed by the state and also elected officials. You guys are in charge of everything. You are supposed to be looking after everyone. You understand that people are rationally ignorant. They don't know everything. You shouldn't, like, it is perhaps foolishly naive to say this, but you have a moral obligation to do the right thing. Um, but then again, it's it's power and power corrupts as we you know, often hear. So you'd end up with these short-term views of like, we're just gonna get to the next election. That's all we care about. We'll give them tax cuts. We'll reduce the regulations. Everything's going fine. We're just gonna, we're just gonna whatever's happening right now is good. I the economy is going well. Let's just keep doing that. Right. And like, you're just, it's fear and greed kind of thing. It's, it's And a lot of politicians, like you saw it, with the election of Tony Abbott in Australia, despite the fact that people were really upset that Julia Gillard had, had you know, effectively, you know, to use evocative language, knifed Tony, uh, knifed Rudd, and then Rudd came back and knifed her, and they really, like, it was, people just did not like Labor at all. And so Tony Abbott could just have walked into the office. Regardless of that, at the kind of the, the 11th hour, he was still offering more and more things in the budget and things we're going to do this, we're going to give these people that, and because there's this worry as you get closer and closer to the election, am I going to get it, am I going to, I just promise a little bit more and I'll get in. And so politicians will, will double down on what they already have, like oh, things are going well, we just we need to give more and we'll give more and you're not thinking logically, you're not, and that's part of what, partly why you need a public sector is to have people that are not elected so they can say, Minister, I really disagree with this course of action. But then you have to do what the minister says, but you can say like, this is not a smart idea. But then again, you're also maybe ideologically in the frame of mind. That's what we've been doing for the last 10 years. Everyone in the office has been doing the same thing for the last 10 years. It's been going great. Don't worry about I it. I guess it's those bull and bear eyeglasses again. Yes, exactly. That maybe no one in the economy is immune to getting those glasses yeah. put on. My next question would be, could it have been avoided in your point of view? Could... Could someone have taken off? Were there people in Germany saying, or in the EU in general, saying this is a really unsustainable thing that we're doing? Let's say even, because really it seems that the thing that precipitated this was the GFC in the United States. Yeah. If that didn't happen, do mm. you think the euro crisis would have happened? Um, I think it could have gotten away as long as there was an external shock. As, And I think they could have unwound it. Over time, they could have. They could have. You think, mean if if the US GFC if, didn't happen? If it didn't happen, like think about our current housing market. You hear a lot of things in the in the news um, about where we're doing things now in response to kind of GFC and things like that. We're going to try and our housing market's too big. We need to slow down the the, the insane prices of houses. We're going to do things through regulatory actions and things like that. If you have time, you can do that slowly over time and avoid a sudden rout on the on the market, whether it's a property or stock or whatever. And so people could have been slowly like deflate slowly deflate the bubble. Slowly deflate the bubble. Okay. And so if the EU had time, within a few years after GFC, they probably would have noticed anyway. Like, oh, geez, this seems like there's so much debt, but they don't seem to be doing much with it beyond like building a few highways and stuff. They're buying a lot of BMWs though. I know it doesn't seem sustainable. Um, they could have potentially unwound it slowly over time. Reduce their balance sheet. Reduce the balance sheets. Okay. You're going to be like because. Banks could have, in that case, sold off Greek debt slowly. It would have maintained its value and spread that risk around the world instead. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe there's some Chinese investors that are looking for some Greek debt. Like, right. we've got a great China, opportunity. China probably had a better chance of absorbing some of that. Yeah. And okay. so you could have spread it around, reduced the risk to Europe, and like some poor schmuck in, in Beijing can hold it instead. Um, but 
there's a way out of it potentially. Whether people have seen it in time or whether you, every year that goes by, it's another year that you could have had a, an external shock or an internal shock. You, you know, maybe something happens in Germany, maybe all the pigs die or something. Um, that could have caused it to, to rupture. But if you don't have the GFC, then there's a potential chance that you could have seen it and unwound it. Um, but again, it's like if it is kind of your job as a public official or you know, public servant to be keeping out an eye for these kind of things. Just in case. Just in case. Something happens. That's really interesting. Do you think anyone benefited from the euro crisis? Uh the bank bonuses that people got, right? Uh, I was gonna, well, I was gonna say because it, I, I don't know if the banks benefited because it seems like, it seems like at the very least they weren't punished from yes. what I, I heard from you, because there were too many people to send to jail as that third part of the failed yeah. bail sent to jail. There were too many people to send to jail where you'd set up a moral hazard where everyone would be too scared, scared to do anything in the financial sector after that mm. because they have the potential to go to jail. No one went to jail. The bank was bailed out. It seems like there's a potential moral hazard, but I don't know that the banks benefited from it. Yeah, it's individuals within the banks that did well out of it. Uh, the, the poor schmuck that's just running the local bank in Cologne and just giving like, oh, how, much, how many dollars do you have? Uh, how many euros do you have today, uh, Mrs. Schmidt? Uh, he, he's not really benefiting out of it too much, but the traders would have. Uh, and people high up in the organization that run off the overall profits over the years leading up to GFC would have done very well. They, would they have done better than if the GFC didn't happen? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. They, how, they, how would that happen? If the GFC didn't happen, they would have a few years, years more of bonuses before it comes crashing down potentially. Um, now, if you're in a trading uh, institute in a lot of places... You now have a whole bunch of regulatory people in the same office checking. So it's a lot harder to do the crazy trades you were doing back in the day. It's like people come in and be like, mm, you can't do that. Because the governments are now actually doing what they should have done before. They're probably- So how is that a benefit? It seems it's, like it's that's not, a- It's not a benefit. That, okay. I can't explain why. It's like the people who are there at the top and who were trading were making moolah, lots and lots and lots. But they've probably moved on now. They're probably not making as much money now, but they did really well out of it leading up to it. And if- Ah, okay. In the lead up, in they've the lead done up, well. They've done so well. Right. So, so the, they've done well in the lead up. The people they who, haven't been punished in the crash. So they benefit insofar as they didn't get as punished like they should have. Okay. The other group that has done well out of this, and it's what I've touched on in, in the podcast. You may have more questions about this later that I may be jumping forward to. No, please. But be the populists and nationalists. They did very well out of the GFC because their ideology has grown out of this because things have gone wrong. They have a very saleable message with people. Uh, it's very salient with people insofar as that you know, these other people are, you know, the Greeks are at fault or these refugees are at fault or whoever else is, or these, the current elites who have foisted, you know, this particular economic policy on us caused this problem and they're not wrong, um, can get into power. Um, just as a random aside, cause it's in my head and I thought I'd want to get it out before we move potentially too far away. Mm. When you talk about the kind of, why are they, forcing the Greeks to pay this back and using austerity. That is a stupid idea. There was actually a theoretical idea behind it, which um, tried to make it sound like it's a good idea. I forget the name. Um, I remember you mentioned it. Oh, I'm trying to remember what it was. Kind of it's Ricardian equivalence, yes, basically. Yes, that's it. Yes. And the idea that... So uh, to tell a little story, you're, you're a Greek uh, citizen. You have You come home from work. You're not sure if you can have a job tomorrow. Your wife has come home. She's just lost her job. 
And then you hear from the government, they're going to cut spending and increase taxes. So what is your response going to be? Well, from this particular theoretical viewpoint, whether you tax now, it means you're going to be able to spend later and, and vice versa. So you can then go, okay, for the next 40 years, my lifetime of earnings, if they're making a credible commitment right now to increase taxes, it means later on I don't have to, I'm not going to be taxed as much. So I recalculate my lifetime earnings, realize I actually have more money than it seems that I have right now. I go out to IKEA, I buy uh, a new piece of cabinet, everyone else does the same thing. And it cures a recession because we just spent money and that booms the economy and everything's fine. That's not how people actually work. And it's a stupid uh, economic model to think that's how people will work. But that was kind of the theoretical model put forward to justify kind of austerity as being contractionary, uh, contractionary, contractionary uh, economic push will somehow lead to expansionary growth. It is backwards thinking, um, but it's they- led into gold but sort it's, of thinking to me. You're in a position where politically you had to have something to justify what you were putting forward. So right. they, they use that as their kind of justification. And it sounds good. And like, if, as a theory- Ricardian equivalence. Ricardian equivalence. Basically, everything is equivalent. If I take in taxes now, you know, I will have to spend later. Or like, if I spend now, I'm going to have to tax later to make up because I've got debt. So everything sums to zero. Um, as a theory, purely on a mathematical basis, without thinking about human nature at all, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, if I if I spend now, I have to tax later, and so in the end, I'm putting money in the economy, but I'm taking out. So expansion, contraction, sum to zero. It doesn't really make any difference. Um, but as soon as you think about human nature at all. And that idea that we talked earlier about, you know, rational actors in the economy, not really. Um, it doesn't make any sense. You like, have to think about it for, you know, three seconds and it doesn't make any sense. So, yeah, that just as a side, it's like people might be thinking, well, why the hell are they doing this? They have no justification for saying that, you know, austerity is a good idea. That was the idea used. Uh, it is wrong, to say the least. So if you were in power, uh -huh. you being the technocratic pragmatist yes. that you are... What's the right thing to do? Well, what was the correct reaction from the EU and the Germans taking politics off the table, taking how palatable the solution would be off the table? What would be the objective financial best move following the euro crisis? Okay. If there are no politics involved, I ditch the Greeks and I pay back my banks. Ditch the Greeks? Ditch the Greeks. Get kick them, them out, out of the kick, EU? Kick them out of the EU. If I don't mm. care about politics at all, I don't care about European solidarity. I kick them out <laughs> yep. and I pay off my banks because I, I, I also don't have to care about my domestic opinion in this kind of you know, weird world that we live in in terms of a technocratic right. utopia. Um, that would be, from the German perspective, probably the best thing to do. Why, why would that be the best? Because the Greeks aren't going to pay it back anyway. <laughs> so why keep them in the EU? They're a drain. So get, kick them out. Just pay back your banks. Get things rolling. You know, that's, that's, that's how to deal with it. You get rid of the dead weight. Um, I, it's very brutal. Right. But, but that's, you, that's kind of logically what you, you probably, do. from the sounds of things, you probably would have gotten rid of the Greeks before a Euro crisis then. If you, well, if, if from, from my perspective as a kind of, uh, as an international relations theorist, if I can call myself such a thing, such a lofty title, I don't believe in the EU anyway. Um, <laughs> so, so I would get rid of all of them. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the whole and that's that's from that's from a political perspective and also from an economic perspective. Economically, getting rid of everyone's um, printing press and getting rid of their own currency is a really stupid idea for most of the people involved, except for Germany. 
Um, the reason why you want to keep the Greeks in is because their crappy economy will pull down the value of the euro and make your BMWs cheaper for Americans to buy. And so it's good for the German economy to keep them in. But in terms of the amount of money that is going to, you're going to have to keep shoveling into the Greek economy to keep it going. It may be better to just hold on to that money and, uh, and, you know, use that instead rather than just because if you you can choose between some extra profits from bmws and have a whole stack of cash that you can use you probably just want the whole stack of cash because you can use it in some other ways you can probably grow your economy elsewhere or like invest in someone else and make a return and not have to have the greeks you know forever asking for money or handouts well this is a good segue i think into the next thing that i wanted to ask you about and actually the original thing before i heard this podcast which is specifically about the eu and nato but what you just said about that you may not even have the EU in your opinion. Mm. Let's focus on that because you you mentioned a word in there as well, European solidarity. <laughs> Where did the EU and NATO come from? And let's start maybe with the EU. Okay. We all have this idea of the EU and the euro, mm. but I think anyone of our generation that weren't we're not really connected to World War II. Mm. may not really understand the origins. I certainly don't. Where did the EU come from? What was it trying to solve? So the European Union came out of different organizations. Originally, I believe it was the European Steel Commission or something such like. It was basically a, a steel trading community. That's how it started. It's like an economic union. It's, it's kind of, well, it wasn't a proper economic union, but it was basically a trading agreement uh, around steel. I'd have to look it up to see like the exact name. Approximately what year? Uh, I'd probably say 60s, 50s. Okay. It's kind of post-World post War II. And it evolves over time into the, I think it's the European Commission, and then eventually becomes the EU. And so it's basically, as a kind of economic idea, it starts with this very basic things about you know, steel. What are the basic premises if, if you... Mm. Trying to remember the old one for the steel. I think it was agreements over steel manufacturing and import and export. And like, because steel is quite important to some of the economies there, um, especially at a post-war period. And so they were trying to kind of manage that. And the kind of, we all want to be friends. Let's do it a certain way. We'll have agreements and things like that. And through time, it gets attached a political idea of kind of what I said before, European solidarity, that we're all in it together. Uh, we've got to get it, get at those nasty reds, uh, the USSR. But, you know, it's like they have a good incentive to work together because they have a, an enemy on their doorstep that's very dangerous uh, from their perspective. So it kind of builds out of that. And over time, you get more political aspects to it and it gains more credence over time and eventually becomes European Commission and eventually EU. Um, this and is... The, the what, history what of the actually... I'm not as strong on, so I'm, okay. I'm, we may have to go look some things up later and, and, and put that in. But that's basically the background of it. So it starts off as essentially for a particular industry mm. being an agreement, I'm guessing, between the larger European nations about, I guess, steel production, import, export. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Germany, France, and Britain. That makes a lot of sense. Might have been a Spain or Italy in there as well. But that's the kind of the basics. And I guess those agreements probably as iterations happened on it, it would have encompassed more and more goods and yes. maybe more and more countries yes. and eventually just would have grown over time. Okay, what about NATO? Okay, so NATO is, is 
easier for me to, to work with. I feel so. I feel like that, yeah. <laughs> so NATO was born out of the end of World War II. The, it, okay, after so World after War after II. So after World War II. So NATO does not exist before World War II. It does not exist during World War II. It is the North Atlantic Treaty Association. So it's based around the Atlantic right? organization. Yeah, it's based around the, the Atlantic. So the Atlantic Ocean between Europe and the US. That's kind of the, the argue, argument behind it. It's like, okay, this is the really important parts of the world, the US and Europe. The US basically was running the show in terms of it was the only major power out of the West um, that still had any degree of uh, economic ability. Like I think it was like 50% of the world economy after World War II because it wasn't involved in the war and the kind of home front. It wasn't invaded, didn't have its factories destroyed, whereas it didn't have all its people killed like in terms of Russia where like huge portions of the population were killed off. So it was a very strong position. Uh, it's ideologically opposed to the, the, the communists. Um, and while they you know, worked with, in solidarity with our communist brothers and sisters and good old good old Joe, uh, Uncle Joe in Stalin, as in Stalin, uh, propaganda during the war, soon gets forgotten after the war because it is now two global powers looking at a you know, across gun, gun sites at each other. And so... You've got the meat of Europe in between in that between. sandwich of those. Exactly. So Europe is the battlefield for this, effectively. Oh. And so from the USSR's point of view, they just kind of default fall into a position where they conquer countries, you know, liberating them technically from the, the Germans, but then install their own government, like pro-communist governments. So they just end up after the war with a whole bunch of countries that are pro-USSR insofar as they have... They, basically occupying them. The Americans didn't do that. They allowed the French to restructure themselves and the things like they, they let Charles de Gaulle come back into the country. Uh, and he is you know, a, a prominent figure in French history, a general who is has a degree of independence about him. Um, the French do have a long military history, as much as you may hear jokes about them running away. Um, they do have a strong, proud military history, and they're quite an independent country in terms of they like to set their own course and their own destiny. So America wasn't controlling them the same way the USSR uh, was controlling East Germany and Czechoslovakia and things like that. So it's more NATO was an alliance of countries um, willingly entered into, to greater or lesser extent, um, by the governments uh, of basically Western Europe. Um, so like, but the impetus coming from the United States. The United States is the the guarantor basically of the treaty. It is the most powerful nation on earth, and it is saying, "Join us, we will protect you." However, you're going to have side with us, obviously, against the Ruskies. Like it's so weird. that that was how it was sold to the countries. That initially. was basically how it sold. Sign this, yeah, and we'll back you up. Exactly. And what what did they? So I guess two pronged mm -hmm. question here: Who signed it? Okay. And what were their responsibilities as part of the treaty? Okay, the original signatories uh, would have been West Germany, France, um, not Spain, because it was still under uh, a fascist dictator. Uh, I think Francisco, I believe is his last name. I can't remember exactly. Uh, the UK and probably like Belgium and Netherlands and things like that. Uh, Italy, probably so North, Greece. North Central Europe. Yeah, so plus basically... the UK... Yeah, basically, um, basically Western Europe and 
plus kind of Italy and Greece. Um, so Italy and Greece signed on as well? I can't remember if they were at the start, but very soon after, if they hadn't already. Okay. Um, and this was signed immediately after World War II? Not immediately. Basically evolves. 50s, right? Yeah, 50s. Evolves out of the end of the war, of World War II. Um, and the idea is that these countries are staring down the big red bear of the USSR, the United uh, Soviet Socialist Republics. Um, no, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. My apologies. Um, and that they're worried about the Russian bear. They're going to invade and take them over. So they're the, they want the Americans to protect them. And so that's how NATO comes about. And it expands over time to include a few more countries. That's basically the foundation of it. And it's a defensive alliance. It says if you so are attacked, milita- militaristic. it's military. This is a military alliance. Military alliance. It is not a political supranational body like the EU that's like we're all being friends and going to combine our economies. It's, it's purely like if you're attacked, we will come defend you. Everyone else agrees to defend you. Um, it is Article, I think it's Article 5, I think. Um, of the treaty of the treaty says that if you're attacked we will come to your defense it has never been used basically until uh, 2001 and the attacks in the US the World Trade Center attacks so it's never had to be used until then wow and it didn't technically have to be used then so half a century of yeah, not having to be used the idea is that the whole point of it is it's a bluff is that you need to just discourage the other side from attacking and the more countries you get involved the bigger the block is the more it is a disincentive for the other side to attack. Now, there's a risk, though, as you increase the amount of countries you bring in, you increase the risk that you'll be drawn into a conflict. So if you bring Greece on board, then... I know Turkey is another major NATO power. If you bring Greece on board, but then it has some... It's a little country, not that important. Is it really worth bringing on board? It might draw us into a conflict we don't want to get into and might draw us into nuclear war. Right. But if we don't protect it, then are we giving it away to the Russians? And so there's this dichotomy of like, do we bring it on a country on? Do we not? Uh, it, so you're essentially signing your life away. Oh, not, not not your life away, but you're you're essentially saying that we are signing a blood this. pact. Yeah. Yes, a blood pact with the US. Right. If that. you get attacked, we're in there with you 100%. If we get attacked, you're in with us yes. 100%. And there were also some requirements about investment into military yeah. and things so like that. Yeah, so you're meant to uh, supply a certain amount of your GDP towards your um, armaments and your military. So you're supposed to supply, you know, maybe 2%, 3%, 4%, 5% of GDP, uh, investing it in your military. So you provide a credible defense. Part of NATO also effectively provides you part of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. And the idea of a nuclear umbrella is that it protects you from other people's... So you don't uh, need a nuclear program yeah. for yourself. You can... So it also discourages countries from pursuing nukes mm. because it says, no, we will protect you. And so... You're outsourcing your nuclear outsourcing power, Outsourcing nuclear basically. power. And so the UK gets nukes um, because it's a proud nation, a uh, great power that deserves to have nukes. Uh, and the same with the French. Okay. Because the French don't want to rely on the Americans. And this is a common thing with Charles de Gaulle and the French in general. They don't they actually leave NATO, if I recall, or at least pull out of like military sharing agreements and like expel a lot of the Americans. And it's a very famous quote from one of the American generals or the French saying, um, you know, you're expelling us. Um, would you like us to take all our dead soldiers out of your grave cemeteries as well? Basically telling you, we fought and died to defend your country. How dare you kind of kick us out? You, wow. So, so there is... But are they back in now? Was this a temporary they, they, thing? That was a temporary thing. They're back okay. in now. Okay. But there was, you know, there's, the French are very independent and they like to do their own thing. So there's always been a bit of tension in that. But NATO is basically, it's a defensive alliance. We'll protect you with our nukes, protect you with our armies. Um, that way the Ruskies won't get you. 
So that's the basic reason. And the reason America does it is because it wants allies to bolster it against the USSR. The reason why little countries do it is because they want the backing of a big, powerful, major country like the US. And so the US being powerful is magnanimous to them um, and it gains allies and they get defense, basically. So the big thing that I found very, very interesting, or at least was a giant question mark in my head, was the relationship between NATO and the EU. Because ostensibly... There is no relationship. None. Right? Do you think there's a relationship? Do you think one can exist without the other? And I think you know which direction I'm going in. (laughs) Yeah. I I absolutely believe there is a link between the two. And it is it wasn't the original it is developed over time. It wasn't ostensibly there at the start because the EU didn't exist at the start. It is developed over time and it is part of got a a two-prong kind of foreign policy. Uh, perspective by what you would call the new, what's perhaps overused term now these days, but the elites uh, in in Europe and the US. The idea is, on the one hand, we will ensure peace by encompassing this NATO blanket over as many people as possible. Because once you're in NATO, you're protected from the outside. And obviously, you can't fight each other because the rest of the countries involved will hit you. So it's a really nice thing to build. So it's peace through NATO is basically the idea. We don't have to fight anyone. We just keep spreading it to other countries and then nobody can fight each other. And the other side is this idea of um, kind of political freedom, this kind of idea of expanding democracy. And that through the EU... Soft power. Soft power. We will encourage you. Well, you can be part of this great big economy that we're in, this big EU group. If you just meet our requirements, and so you need to have democracy, you need to have free courts and free press and journalists, and through these two aspects, you'll create peace and you'll create democracy. And so through through these two organizations, you have a foreign policy looking to create a peaceful and united Europe, which is to deal with the fact that historically, Europe's been pretty bloody. And so you want to avoid that happening. You also, by doing that, prevent from the Americans' perspective, because generally the Americans like historically have not cared too much about Europe in terms of they just they jump in when somebody's getting too big and is going to take over and become the same as America is like it's a, a regional hegemon. It's just so dominant in its own region. So they don't want anyone in Europe to become too big. So they jump in at the end of World War One to stop the the Germans doing it. And again World War Two, they wait for the Russians to exhaust the Germans and they jump in at the end and say, ha, we're here now. Um, but without having to waste all their own soldiers and material. So they are interested in creating a Europe where none of the countries can fight each other. Because if they can't fight each other, they can't get bigger and you can't get a Germany plus France going that's going to dominate this route. They're stuck where they are. It's kind of a status quo. So from their perspective, it's like, great, we'll keep spanning this. You know, good old democracy, rhetorically speaking, um, and you know full credit to the idea that um, democracies don't fight democracies and this idea of democratic peace theory generally democracies don't fight other democracies it's not perfect insofar as that what is a democracy what is the you know how do you define it you know this this you can shift from a democracy to an autocracy quite quickly if you want to so you know oh yeah we're all friends we're all friends oh wait somebody quickly switched to being fascist or you know you see now nationalism populism rising it's not right forever. could be could be a democratically elected leader who is was... now going to become autocratic and right. fight wars. So it's it's while it tends to be historically accurate, it doesn't really foolproof you because things can go bad and you can take a sudden switch and war will break out. And if you're all sitting next to each other singing kumbaya and some and you've all given up your weapons and some guy just pulls out a knife, you're going to be big trouble. 
Um, so so yeah. that's the term two prongs. It's like we'll get freedom and democracy so people won't want to fight each other. Because So freedom and democracy, you're talking about NATO or the EU? EU. That's kind of EU. pushing those norms. And NATO says we're going to enforce peace because no one's going to fight each other because the US is backing these countries. If I take the position of a European country, mm-hmm. it would seem way more valuable to me to be part of NATO than it would be part of the EU. Am I wrong about that perception? Because it seems like if you're trying to... Let's say the objective is to prevent war in Europe. NATO seems to accomplish that pretty well because if you you can't, I presume, fight within NATO. Yes. No one's. If you fight another NATO country, if you initiated that, all of the other NATO countries fight will fight you. Yeah. So even taking the US out of the picture, right, you can't really. But if you're just focusing on mm. the European states, if the goal is to prevent war in Europe, it seems that NATO accomplishes that pretty well. It does. If you're allied with the US, it would somehow, it would somewhat imply that you were maybe looking toward democracy and freedom and that sort of thing. But maybe let, let's not go that far. Let's just say that you're part of NATO. That would prevent war within Europe. That seems like maybe the biggest function that you would want to have in Europe, which historically was attacking itself all the time, mm. you know, for the last two millennia. Yeah, and, pretty much. And earlier. And even. earlier, yeah. So why why add the EU on top of that? Because if I think about... So you, you mentioned Turkey. Turkey's not part of the EU, am I right? That's correct. So Turkey's part of NATO, mm-hmm. not part of the EU. Yes. In their position... Why would they even want to be part of the EU? So there are some certain perks about joining the EU. Because it's a trading block, they set kind of imports and exports to everyone else coming, selling their goods to the EU. So if you can get inside the the block, you don't have to worry about their imports and exports. You get the free flow of people and goods, which means if you have trouble selling your goods to the EU because of their import tariffs or whatever they are, if you get inside, you don't have to worry about those tariffs anymore. You, they could be a real boon to your economy because you can just export things like crazy and they can give you things cheaply as well. And so everyone benefits. The idea is the classic trade idea is like the idea is that we will trade and we will get richer. And so there's an incentive to join the EU because then you'll get part of this big trade union and you'll be able to make more money. That's kind of the EU incentive is that you will be able to make more money, be more prosperous. We might even invest in you because you know, we have an EU budget. So there's a lot of incentives to join the EU in that regard. And what do you hand over? Well, what's the Faustian trade that you <laughs> have to make? What's the Faustian bargain you're making? Yeah, what's the Faustian bargain? It's You have to give up your printing press. You have to abide by some fiscal constraints. So you're not allowed to run like deficits um, that are like beyond like 3% or something like that. So there's constraints on what you can do in your domestic economy. Is the euro linked? to the EU? Do you have to use... So yeah, it's an interesting situation. The European Union is ostensibly linked to the euro, but is not in every country. So for instance, Sweden uses the Swedish krona. It doesn't use the European Union's euro, um, despite being in the European Union. Same with the UK. So you can be in it and you can keep your own currency. And that is the preferred option from Nathan's point of view. From my point of view, I think if I'm going to be in the EU, I want my own currency because then I can manipulate it. Um, so, but didn't you just say you have to give up your printing press? A lot of the time, they like enforce it. They're like, especially uh, if you're a smaller country, joining now, they'd be like, you you join by our rules and you do whatever you want. But if you're the UK, you can decide whether you keep the pound or not because you're a big country and you can kind of 
decide you have more power so you can negotiate more. Sweden, again, you're a big enough country that you can negotiate a bit and try and get your own. And you might, I don't know what the exact negotiations, I won't enter the room for those ones, but what they so, had to, to do or give up or not give up, they may have just been like, there may have been at the time, let's just get Sweden on board because it's a nice country, we want them on board and it's going to convince others to join and things like that. Or they have something that's particularly useful for our trade group and we're willing to let them keep their own currency because we want access to that, those goods or something like that. So yeah, the idea is that generally joining the EU means there's constraints on your monetary and fiscal policy. You basically outsource fiscal policy, uh, sorry, uh, monetary policy to the EU. And you have restraints on your fiscal and policy. And you have restraints on your fiscal policy and what you're able to spend in tax and things and like that. And what you get is much more lubricated trade yes. with Europe, yes. import and export basically. Yep. So it's trade for outsourcing your monetary and fiscal policy or yeah. outsourcing your monetary policy and taking so limits on your fiscal, fiscal policy. policy. How, so they're selling that. Mm. Has it benefited any country that has joined the EU? So if we well, take sure. the, the, so the, the, the for instance, um, Germany obviously, has, as I said before, it was benefiting because it was, you know, people were, the weak economies in Europe keep the euro down, which makes it, cheaper for the Germans to sell their BMWs elsewhere. So so the strong economy benefits more than the weaker economy. However, if you're, say, in Eastern Europe and you're still developing and the Germans are looking for a cheap labor force to build parts of their BMWs, they might go over to you and say, hey, why don't you build the windscreens or the chassis of our BMWs and send it to us? From your perspective, this is great. We can use my cheaper labor. We're now inside the the collective union, so things are cheaper for us to import and export. It's good for our local economy. And also we are now being contracted by the Germans to build parts of their cars, so we're, now our economy is booming. So we're, we're essentially becoming part of the German economy in a sense. Yeah, you're acting as part of their supply chain. You get the double benefits of being inside the union, so you don't have to worry about imports uh, and the inefficiency of imports and, and export tariffs. At the same time as you're now becoming part of their free trade agreement. So you the, the, the flow of goods is so simple that you now become a choice select group to have the Germans come to you and say, hey, build stuff for us. And then you get money from the Germans from you know, because they're paying you obviously to make things and you sell it to them, you make a profit. Does that happen in practice? It does. So in, in Eastern Europe right now, the Germans um, are getting exactly that is what is happening. They're getting the Eastern Europeans to build parts of their cars and send it to them. And so it's great. And the Eastern European economies are actually benefiting from it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I guess Poland would be an example, maybe. I'm not sure. Because I'm not sure if Poland does that. I certainly think, I think Romania and I think, um, I think Czechoslovakia, not Czech, Czech Republic, Republic now. not Czechoslovakia, anyone's Czechoslovakia and Czech Republic now. Um, and amicably split, um, one of the, the nice things about the post end of Cold War. Um, I'm not sure if Poland does, but certainly several countries. So you think there, there are, are genuine benefits there are genuine for benefits. the big countries and the, well, let's say the stronger economies and the weaker economies for joining that union? There if, are actual benefits. Yeah, if they're in good spots for it. If you are Greece, though, the Germans don't really want you to build car parts for them because you're not, your economy is not good for that. You're good for making some olive oil or something, maybe. That's very brutal. But no, their their economy is just not that powerful, not that useful. It is split up by all these mountainous terrain. It makes it hard to kind of integrate. It's just not as good as if you're part of Eastern Europe. You've got a nice long flat plane. You can quickly transport things across or and things like that. So it yeah, makes... I've played Euro Truck Simulator, man, and <laughs> all about it. So, so from their perspective, certain countries do well out of it for different reasons. 
but a lot of the southern countries don't. All they end up doing is they end up taking on debt, taking on debt because they can't grow any other way. They can't compete with the Germans, and they keep the the price of the euro down for the Germans, which is great for the Germans' perspective. But not are all the countries in the EU also part of NATO? So the opposite isn't true because we've got um, Turkey, which is not part of the EU but I part would of NATO. Say probably yes. What I about can't... the Balkan countries? Are they part of NATO? Uh, Macedonia, no. Serbia. So, uh, for, for instance, uh, Macedonia is not. And the reason why it's not in NATO is it would have otherwise been, but they have a naming dispute with Greece, ah, right. um, which they're trying to resolve right now. And there's, you know, there's a lot of upset people in, in both countries. <laughs> yeah. um, I, we can go over that briefly, but it's, it's basically um, Macedonia kind of appeared out of the end of Yugos, uh, Yugoslavia, uh, kind of the breakup of Yugoslavia, saw Macedonia emerge. Uh, the Greeks weren't happy that they used the kind of historical name of Macedonia because they associate it with their own history with Alexander the Great. Now, the territory... Who, who Macedonia claim? Yeah, they both claim them. Um, <laughs> the territory involved, like depending on where historically you choose from, parts of it are included in either country. So they both could technically have a claim to it. But the Greeks don't like it. Like they've got not, they don't have a lot. So they want to at least have the dignity of having Macedonia. Um, and you know, vice versa, obviously Macedonia wants to create a national identity out of the end of the Yugoslavia. They want to create around Macedonia and you know, call back to Alexander the Great. Perfectly understandable that they would want to do that. But yeah, that's a dispute. And so the, the Greeks have blocked... Uh, the NATO Macedonian NATO, uh, what's the term? There's a particular name, name for it, like advancement or uh, elevation or some such. But yeah, they they basically are blocking that until they resolve that naming dispute. Okay. So so and, there there are countries that well, I mean, Macedonia is also not part of the EU. Yeah, but so but, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But okay. The, probably the vast they may be one or two. They're right. not. But the vast majority are. And that, that sort of leads me to my next question is, do you think the EU could exist in the absence of NATO? Okay. And so this is my little, my little pet uh, rant that I, I like have, I like to get in my soapbox about. To give the underlying reason why NATO exists and the EU exists is that in the international system, it's something that we refer to as anarchy, international anarchy. Now, it's not people running around with Molotov cocktails. It's the <laughs> idea that it's, there's no higher authority that you can appeal to. If you're Australia and you get into trouble, you can't call triple zero and have someone pick up the phone and save you. So you have to look out for yourself. It's a self-help system. So in that system, you're scared about everyone else. There's a whole theory behind this I could go to if we had time. But you're scared of other people. You, there's only self-help system, so you're going to get guns and you're going to watch each other and, and worry. So it's really hard to build kind of a solidarity in Europe if you're all worried about each other and you have gun sights pointed at each other. So which the, historically which they were. historically was the case. Right. The end of World War II creates a unique opportunity. You have the U.S. with its massive economy and, and large military, the chance to impose an artificial hierarchy in Europe and say to everyone in Europe, we are going to be what they call the night watchman. We're the person that if you get in trouble, we will come save you. And so under those conditions, suddenly anarchy, which is this old problem in international politics, suddenly goes away. And suddenly like, well, well, our Belgian brothers and sisters over there are no longer worried about us, the Germans, invading again through their territory. Because we're part of the same team. We're part of the same team. We don't have to worry about them. So we don't need to worry about each other. Why don't we? Why don't we get along and, and create a trade union? Why don't we get along and create kind of political union? Why don't we encourage democracy in each country and we'll spread it throughout the European Union, like the Europe at large, 
And us as kind of elites believe in this idea of like, well, why we have these artificial borders? It's kind of, we just got drawn on the map over time. Why, 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 why bother with this? Why don't we create one Europe as one major state? We'll just slowly over time destroy the borders, you know, between people and goods and language. We'll just try and put them all together and we'll have this one super nation and we'll all be peaceful and it'll be great. That's how you can't have a Europe. My, my argument is you can't have a Europe without that artificial hierarchy. If you don't have the US saying don't fight, you go back to the last 2000 years of wow. them worried about each other. So really the EU grew out of the ground that NATO set exactly. basically. So if you don't have NATO, my argument is you don't have that. Now there's an argument to be made that the African Union, which is nowhere near as integrated as the European Union, could potentially prove me wrong. And so they're interesting to me as like, I like to watch the African Union as a test case. Like, does my theory hold? Because if the African- What's your theory? My theory is that in the absence of a hierarchy, you can't have a what they call supranational body that subsumes the other nations. And when you say hierarchy, do you basically mean that the US has underwritten the piece? Yeah. So So basically it's like some- External entity needs to become the night watchman that watches over your region and says, no one can fight each other. And it's not- it has to be a country outside of the supranational body? It could be someone inside it, but they would have to work really hard to convince everyone else that they weren't going to screw them over and take over that stuff. Because it's called... It'd be a like di- Germany being the Yeah, it's like if, if night you could make an argument, maybe Britain could do it because it has a water barrier between the two. Um, but generally, they, what they refer to as a distant great power is needed. Because, a distant great power, so interesting. the US... Like it doesn't really have the means to project power across the the Atlantic and then take over France and Germany and really hold the ground or anything like that. It's, it's very difficult to do that. Um, so the African Union. So the African Union is interesting because they don't have the U.S. standing over them saying you will play nicely. Well, Chinese investment in Africa well, is quite a lot. I'm just yeah, I'm wondering yeah. how much that relates, if at all. I, I don't think it does. Okay. I think that is purely the Chinese looking for somewhere to invest uh, and secure resources and things like that. But if the African Union ever gets to the point the European Union is at right now, I would be willing to eat my words and say, well, maybe the theory does not hold. You can do it without a hierarchy. But my current view now is that without absent of a hierarchy, things will devolve back to their old ways. I guess with, with Africa and an African Union, it would be so much larger than the EU in terms yeah. of geography yeah. population wise i can't think off the top of my head i think the population of europe in total must be something like 500 million, million? probably i wouldn't be surprised if they had half a billion people there yeah um africa in total i feel like would have much more it will have more if it hasn't got more it will have more because europe right. is aging and africa is still young so geographically it's way bigger way, there are way, way, bigger. way more countries mm. way more people I guess that would be a really interesting it test would. case. So if a if a I mean a continent is yeah. able to unite that is geographically bigger, mm. more people, more countries without a night watchman, that would be a really interesting outcome. It would be. That, that would respect, be right? a, a amazing and unexpected from my position, especially considering at least in Europe you can say the son of you could make an argument there's some cultural similarities enough that they can all kind of get along. To some greater or lesser extent. Well, there's no precedent for making a statement like that. But, but. <laughs> but no, but you could say like there, there is kind of European civilization has some kind of. There's been lots of inter, inter, 
integrating, and they're all a lot of them are based on Christianity and things like that. There's some kind of ground you could say that they have common ground on. Africa is a bit different. Like North Africa is not at all like the middle or the south of Africa. It's not just butter and oil, is it? It's not just butter. It is. I, you could guess you call it the Islamic divide. It's like the north of Africa is much more like the Middle East in terms of its culture, in terms of kind of where its heart is, um, than it is to the rest of Africa. So if you take Egypt. That is a as basically an Arab country that is in the north uh, northeast of Africa. Same with um, Libya, um, and the same with like Morocco and things like that. So the north is more um, is more Arab and more uh, Islamic than the rest. So there is a there is a different cultural divide there. Well, I guess where we draw the lines is totally arbitrary as well. The fact that we say that Egypt is part of Africa and not part of the Middle East is yeah. totally arbitrary. Yeah. There's no there's no reason that there should even be, I mean, a single line. Yeah. It's, if you start from the south and work up, you're probably working in a gradient maybe. Yeah, it probably is a gradient. The only way I wouldn't say it is gradient insofar as that people believe in the lines uh, and they expel people over the lines and you hunt down the people inside the lines that they don't like. And so you can get a very distinct, like you get very distinct your ethnic and cultural and linguistic groups based on a border that is just drawn on a map just because we believe in nation states, the idea of borders and things like that. Um, so it's it, the gradient is probably there, but it may be more severe than one would normally expect if you just considered the lines were all arbitrary, which they are, except for the fact that we believe in them. Um, so, Interesting. Yeah. So, they, they, so that's the African Union. That's the, if they manage to get it all together, which I don't think they will, um, then I would consider that. <laughs> you heard it here first, <laughs> you heard it here folks. First. You heard it here first. I, I would be surprised. And if they did, I'd be like, okay, that's quite interesting. That mm. that defeats the theoretical argument that I and assumptions that I'm working on. But Because even for you, I guess, based on that argument, you would say that if the US left NATO, that mm. the EU would also collapse, based on your theory. Yes. That's okay. exactly what I predict will happen. Okay. Um, you heard it here first. Again, again you heard it here first. Like, <laughs> if you're America, just think about America. You have gone into Europe to protect the Europeans from the Russians. Right. And you go through the Cold War. It's perfectly reasonable. Russia is at risk of becoming a great power, of becoming a superpower, becoming a regional hegemon. The idea that in your particular region, so it's Western Europe, kind of Europe to, to Asia, you are the dominant power and everyone else has to kowtow to you. That is what America is now. No one in America worries about Canada invading. Like nobody. Like nobody loses sleep over that. No one worries about the Mexicans invading except for taking some like low-level jobs. Like there's no Mexican army that people are worried about. Jobs. Right. So, so you, that's kind of what a regional hegemon is. And that is what America. And if you're a regional hegemon, you don't want anyone else to become a regional hegemon because they're a potential peer competitor. America does not tolerate those. Imperial Japan, uh, Imperial Germany, Nazi Germany, USSR, all taken out by, in a greater or lesser extent, by the US, because they just do not tolerate peer competitors. So if you're the US, you build up the Cold War, you fight off the Reds. That's what you care about. That's why you're in Europe, because you worry about them. Other, that's when before Europe, World War II, they went back to isolationism, because they don't care about Europe. They, like, they care about their own backyard. But the end of the Cold War means Russia retreats and you slowly see the expansion of the European Union and NATO as it goes eastward in this idea that we're going to spread democracy and peace, da-da-da-da-da. But from the Americans' perspective, why am I in this NATO organization? Why am I in NATO? I don't have any threats in Europe that now. are at risk anymore. Now, right, okay. So why am I in there? 
And so that's what you're seeing reflected in the American populace now and in Trump as well, this disregard of NATO. They don't care about NATO anymore. Because Russia is not a credible threat anymore. Russia is is not a credible threat. Despite the fact that some people (laughs) in America really enjoy the the good old days of fighting off the Reds, they are not a credible threat. They are a bigger gas station. That is all they are. They are declining population that is getting older. They don't have, their military is going to have to keep on shrinking because their economy and both their population can't keep it the way it was. It is not a credible threat to take over West Germany and run through Nathan's France. Nathan's damning indictment and, of Russia. Like, it, I don't blame the Russians for it, but it's just the facts. It's like, the same as like Australia. We right. are not a threat of becoming a regional hegemon. It's just right. not going to happen. With so 25 US, million people, we're not a threat. The US now seeing the decline of Russia, essentially, NATO is in some senses obsolete. Absolutely. From... From the perspective of the U.S. Yes. To the members of NATO that are not the U.S., it's definitely not obsolete. Exactly. But to the U.S., it's obsolete. And if the U.S. pulls out, based on your theory... No night watchman anymore. Uh-oh. And suddenly all the European powers have to look at each other and say, uh, we're friends, right? Yeah? All right, cool. We're friends. And you just go out the back and say, hey, Schmidt... Build a tank, just in case. And so then you build a tank, and then the French go, oh, no, the Germans have got a tank. We must get a tank, too, just in case. And you build a tank, and everyone starts building tanks. And right, about so it suddenly people are maintaining militaries just in case. Okay. What, are the, what do you call that with... Um, uh, where you're, you're essentially trying to keep up with the Joneses yeah. in terms of military. It's, it's What's called that called? the security dilemma. Security dilemma. It's like you build something purely to defend yourself, but... You don't know the part of people don't know if you're what your intentions are. So your intentions are in your head. You can never know them for sure. Right. So the only thing you can do is look at capabilities. And they now have a tank. So I, I need a tank now to protect myself. And then it just goes. But on we're all part of the EU, Nathan. But yes, and that's the thing is like you will probably see that for a while it keeps going just through inertia. And like I think in NATO continue to exist is through inertia. Like some people predicted it's the day that the Cold War ends. The the day that happens, you must pull out. Be, NATO's gone. Yeah. That doesn't really take human nature and the kind of inertia into account. Right. I think there is inertia. Fear and of change, I guess. Fear of change. Yeah. But if it's kind of, you know, one day of anger or thousands days of kind of just neglect, eventually the thing is going to fall apart because it's just America has bigger fish to fry. But like it kept it going for a while because China wasn't a threat. Now that China is a threat, America doesn't have much of incentive to have its troops in Europe. Why would I have them there when I could have them containing China and supporting my friends in Southeast Asia? What do you think is the most plausible, not not necessarily the timeline, but the the narrative? Yeah, the process. Do do countries start falling out of the EU as they start to become more suspicious of their neighbors and things like that? I think a lot of it hinges on the credibility of American commitment. If the Europeans, even if America is still technically committed, but the Europeans lose faith in it, it falls anyway. Okay. But if the Americans leave, it absolutely is going to start crumbling. So you would see so that... NATO crumbles and then the, the EU and then follows? The EU follows. And how, that, how does the EU follow? How does, how does it happen? Well, so um, if kind of back in the good old days, you didn't trade with your enemies or potential enemies because you might, have a, you might rely on their vital resources. And so if you're trading between Germany and France... You might need their steel or vice versa. And so you don't want to trade with them. You don't want to be reliant on someone. And so it makes sense to build an imperial empire, go around the world, get the things you need from various places, and then build up your army and your own national economy to worry about the Germans or the Brits or whatnot. 
if you go back to that kind of situation where those countries are now worried about each other, do you really want to be in a trade union where you rely on them to get your milk so you can keep eating or your grain yeah, or your steel? Yeah. You're now dependent yourself, on potential, yeah. potential enemy. So the trade union makes less sense. It starts devolving down. You might say, well, no, 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 no. Like, we have interdependence. We rely on each other for trade. Who would kill the golden goose that's laying the eggs? You know, the golden eggs is from this amazing golden goose. It's like even better than just a goose that we thought, oh, it trades good. We both get ever. No, no, no. It's like a hypersteroids. The European version is like there's basically no barriers. So if you've got that there, surely that will keep everyone inside. We're going to be friends still, right? Fear, I guess, overrides. Survival. Survival is the ultimate goal because if you don't survive, you can't pursue any other goals. And so if you put survival under some real threat as an issue, they'll just give up the trade. Who cares about trade? I'd rather be slightly poor and alive than dead and rich. Wow. So then you as the Germans and the French and all that start devolving down, starts breaking down the EU. And it could go either way. You could see the European Union start devolving like it is right now with like Hungary and Poland are going Brexits, more autocratic. Dexits, Frexits. Exactly. All the, all the exits happening. And you could see that happen precipitating then NATO or the other way around. Mm. Both of them could, could fracture. Um, so yeah, and it just, the only reason why NATO would fracture really, really quick is if the U S pulled out like tomorrow. Um, and you know, Trump has risked that and he's come out with rhetoric like that, but he hasn't actually followed through. So I don't know if that is as soon as possible uh, as could have happened, but he, he's a bit weird because, you know, he says things, but he doesn't follow through through things. He doesn't say other things and then suddenly jumps out and says, Oh, we're making friends with North Korea. So it could happen, but you don't know. Right. Um, but if he did pull out, then that would I would say NATO is basically dead. Um, nice. So, yeah. Well, I think that's a, a good point to end on. We've covered history, the present, and now a prediction for the future that you've heard here first. Thanks for talking to me, man. It was, it was really, really good. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Boom. Weren't expecting that, were you? Never a dull conversation with Nathan, and I can't wait to bring you more of them. I hope you really enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I strongly encourage everyone to check out the Envoy podcast, which Nathan hosts. Just search Envoy, E-N-V-O-Y, on whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this. You can also check out the Envoy website at envoyfpa.org. Did you enjoy this episode? If so, please consider sharing it with a friend. Do you have any questions for me or Nathan regarding the episode or just want to get in touch? I'm available at percy at percygrunwald.com or as at percygrunwald on Twitter and other socials. Thanks again for listening and I'll speak at you next time. Go to bed.